Hello and welcome to episode 241 of the Ram Nintendo Podcast. I'm Jason. I'm Angel. I'm Kevin. I feel like I, we slipped into like an NPR thing or something. But anyway, um, this uh, episode we're going to be talking about some big little things and some little big things. Um, so much that we're calling it Major Mini. But not Little Big Planet at all. But not, but not Little Big Planet, except just I, Little Big Things. Except I just brought it up. Getting <laughs> well, a, now we're talking about a 3D adventure it, so game or a 3D it. adventure game. That's kind of cool. Yeah, but, it it looks like it's just straight up ripped off uh, Mario th- 3D Land, 3D World. I don't know why my tongue did that thing right now. I just did, but I we'll, we'll, we'll fix it. About. I'll fix it in editing. You'll fix it in post. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but yeah, maybe well, I should explain what I, what I meant by Major Mini and all that. Um, so we're gonna be talking about. The recent Nintendo Direct Mini Partner Showcase, the final one of 2020, which actually went out with a bit of a bigger than expected bang than the others because they have this surprise cloud gaming push, which is kind of a big deal if you think about it in terms of what it could mean. They had a Hyrule Warriors demo, which, you know, that's a first party thing, but came in this little partner showcase. And then they shadow dropped uh, How Laboratory's Part-Time UFO, which in and of itself isn't huge, but it's a charming little game and it's from a very established developer. So we're going to have impressions of all of that stuff later in the show. And we're going to be covering Nintendo's Just Loose financial report, which has some very major numbers, but felt very like mini in its delivery, like this, like just in the scope of how they shared those numbers. Because typically it's this whole elaborate thing, and they're like, we're going to do this, and here's our strategy, and here's the next thing. And this time they're just like, yeah, we're still doing great. Here they are, and that was the whole report. So, um, yeah. So as we like navigate all that and the games and details, you know, as always, there are timestamps around Nintendo.com for listeners out there to make it a bit easier for you. Uh, but to really kick us off, let's talk about none of the things I just brought up, or Little Big Planet you just brought up. Uh, Angel, you have been revisiting a childhood favorite of yours in Switch form now, and I know you want to share a few words about it. Star Wars Episode One Racer, right? Yeah, Star Wars Episode One. Is that is it just Racer or the Pod Racer? No, it's just Racer. I don't know. I feel like it has like five names. I think it's just Racer. Yeah. Oh man, this game. It's funny because that game has definitely completely changed from my perception of it. I guess in my head, like the nostalgia I had for it versus I guess what it actually does play like after having revisited. But yeah, I don't know. I, I always remembered it being like really difficult, but very fun, and that is definitely still true. I don't even honestly know why we got it to begin with because I was never and still am not that big of a Star Wars fan. I don't dislike Star Wars. I can only say that. Like I don't dislike it at all. I just don't really go out of my way to watch any of the things. But I mean, if mm-hmm. stuff is presented to me with friends, I'll definitely check it out. I am in the same camp as that. And I never really watched. Yeah, I didn't watch um the original three, four, five, and six until after college with some friends. I just finally watch them. But I did watch. I think one, two, and three. Two and three in theaters, I believe, just because that's what you know my friends are doing, and like, why not? We're hanging out, and. I think, yeah, I think there was probably enough nostalgia for the first one that maybe, or maybe it was just that popular that my parents were like, hey, let's get them this Star Wars game for the N64. I don't even know if there were a lot of other Star Wars games for the N64 at the time either, but... Uh, there were a few. Shadow of the Empire, Rogue Squadron, no, Rogue, yeah, Rogue, Rogue Squadron. No, it's, I thought that was a GameCube one. There was another one? Uh, there was originally, I think, on N64, and then Rogue Leader was the GameCube one. Um, question, though, are you saying the first Star Wars you saw was Attack of the Clones? The first Star Wars you ever saw was the one with with um, Anakin in, and in rolling I'm down sure. the hill in love. No, in theaters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, in theaters. Okay. I'm pretty sure like the first full Star Wars I saw like from beginning to end was probably Episode One, as it should be. Okay. You know, I was gonna say, if it was, yeah, if it was Episode Two, I'd be like, "Ooh, I'm so sorry that that's where you started." You, no wonder you don't like the franchise that much. <laughs> <laughs> I. It's funny. Like I never even like really disliked Jar Jar. He was. I don't know. Oh, I loved him as a kid. I think it's because we were like kids when he came out that 
he was not only like tolerable, but he was just like, I don't know, I wouldn't say a character I loved, but you know, you're already used to that character to be inserted into a lot of the media. Like almost every other cartoon had that character with the silly voice or, I don't know, you always have the dumb one, I guess. Well, yeah, I always like, as a kid, and even now, my favorite Pokemon being Bidoof, I always liked the like dumb, silly, weird, like offbeat sort of characters and Jar Jar's like, stupidity just i used to go around as a kid and say misa all the time not all the time but shortly after that movie for a while i'd be like misa this misa that i probably drove my parents insane but yeah i loved it not to derail the com the conversation about racer but did i already explain what happened to jar jar like canonically in the uh disney universe <laughs> like Wait, officially yeah canonically i remember the no rumor i know the rumors that he's a sith lord well i mean i mean that was a theory i guess but yeah 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 the theory i mean but the, actually what no wait what what happened, what happened? so oh did he die off screen so no no uh i'd argue that what happened to him is, is actually worse than that so in the first book that was released after the disney purchase that takes place in between uh episode three and four they allude to this I forget, Gungan. I think Gungan is the name of his race. Of this yeah, poor exactly. Gungan being like a street clown for kids. So, oh man. So, so basically, he's gonna go Joker on everyone eventually. Yeah. So he's he's just yeah. That's ooh. Damn. He used poor to be Joker. part of the Senate or something, right? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow. That what a fall from grace. Yeah. <laughs> like from, from being a part of the government to like a street corner yeah, like, to, sad to street clown trying to get money from kids so he can buy crack <laughs> <laughs> poor George him just going me sending my fix yeah. over and over yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I could totally picture that and hear that oh totally but, yeah well Oh, wow. So is he uh, in episode one racer? Does he have at he least actually a is. He does have a, okay, a cameo. Oh, he's cameo. Okay. Yeah, he's just um he's in the shop, um which I will get into soon. But but yeah, essentially, um I could also thank this game very much for just making me appreciate I guess orchestrated soundtracks in games. I think this is probably one of the first where I mean they straight up just use a lot of the battle music or action music from the Star Wars films. Like you just straight up. They're just ported in there, which is great. I mean, they use Duel of the Fates in racetracks and on the title screen. On yeah, the title loop. screen has Duel of the Fates. It, <laughs> they they know that that's the best thing that that came out of those <laughs> those uh the prequel trilogies. So, dude, like Might that track makes it. it makes the game sound way more intense than it is. Like you just like boot it up and you hear that music and it's like whoa, like yeah, it just got real. Um, <laughs> and I'm I'm sure that like contributed to I guess just me like loving that song so much because we definitely sat there on the title screen a lot of times and just hearing it over and over again. But as I'm replaying it, listening to the other tracks too, it's like, oh, I actually remember this song or this track from this other movie or, you know, it's it's a really nice, like, intense and, I don't know, it's just really great. Um, I mm-hmm. don't really recall, like, enjoying the, the track music this much than, I mean, Mario Kart 8 has some great track music or even the Mario Kart series in general, but a lot of them don't get me hyped for, for the race a lot of them are just kind of like like yeah it's a catchy tune but it's just kind of there are in some cases like i don't even like some of them like i am actually not the biggest fan of the moo moo metals theme it's just maybe you just heard it too much or just kind of annoyed me or maybe it was a combination of the track design with that song that just made me want to get out of there as soon as possible but yeah like this music the the track and the sound the soundtrack is hype oh especially the sound effects like i mean 
obviously just ripped straight from the Star Wars films, but when you hit the boost, when you like explode into something or you hear like the background, like some lasers or anything like that, it's no, no, it's definitely a very immersive and I don't want to say like transcending experience. <laughs> it's just so weird how like <laughs> how this like N64 game from such a long time ago. And I'm kind of serious. Like the longer you play it, like especially now, you think the visuals like wouldn't hold up, but as blocky as they look and as like bad as they look when you're not really playing, because there are some cinematics that play before every race in the cups. Yeah, they look dated as heck and almost like laughably bad in some instances. But I don't know. They also kind of have like a charm to them. I think this is something that is kind of applies to a lot of N64 games where. It sounds really weird, and I don't think I'm able to explain it, but sometimes I could, the world in some of these XT4 games feel more believable than some of the way more fleshed out detail worlds than I've seen in some recent games. I don't know what it is about, like, I think it just makes it more mysterious. Like, I don't know why. Maybe the fact that the characters can't emote properly leaves a lot to the imagination, and I guess my imagination is working, like, overtime just to, like, add a lot of depth to these characters because they can't do it themselves that I just end up, I don't know, thinking about them in more real terms. Like if I see like a house in the background of an F64 game, I think my, my head would do a lot more to fill in the gaps into who is living there or that kind of stuff than a more modern game where like, Oh, that's just a really nice set designed house. I just, I feel like I wouldn't put as much thought into it. I don't know why that's just happens to be how my brain operates, I guess. Not necessarily a part a, of it's because of the era we grew up with. Like we grew that, up. I mean, that must be it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Cause like, so for we us, we're it's forced to like, go through that. So that would be interesting yeah. to ask this to, you know, like a kid that is growing up in these times with these games that look this amazing, this amazing and, you know, have a plan for a game and be like, what do you think about that? Cause we did grow up with those. Same thing with like a lot of pixelated games. Like the fact we can't mm-hmm. see their faces sometimes, I don't know, feels better. But well, it's it's a lot like how we were talking about with 3D All Stars when it came out. Like, you know, what game? Like, like Mars 64 is like a history lesson for a lot of people versus something that's actually just like quality product because you know there's like, oh, Mario used to be like this, and then it evolved from there. I'm used to like Galaxy, like this feels like a step back. But for us, it's like, oh, that's the core, and then Galaxy built on top of the core. So it's just kind of like like we're we're coming in at different entry points, so we have different perspectives of what like the baseline of expectations are, which I think is why. You look at something in a PS5 or X Series X game that comes out next week, and you're like, "Oh yeah, I see how they like did all that modeling." Because your head is at, and somewhat this is true for me too, is that mm, well, true. to me, a house is just this box with a door that I think about what's inside. Now they're telling me this is what's inside, so it's like the, the, you know. No, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I've definitely having dipped my toes a lot into you know the animation side of things, and you know just watching videos, going to conventions, and being like keeping our ears to the ground on like the game industry we've pretty much seen like how games are made at this point having that curtain pulled back even though i definitely wouldn't say it ruins games for me at all it does kind of you do lose some of that whimsy or maybe that mystery that you kind of had as a kid kind of like cartoons like i remember i guess from a very age i did always wonder like how they were made but it wasn't as early as i remember like you know you kind of see these characters moving and you're just like wow like that's bugs bunny it's not like Mel Blank, I forgot his name. Yeah, um, doing these voices, but but nowadays, like as soon as, especially depending on the voice actor, like you see a character and you're immediately think like, oh, that's um, what's his name? 
Billy. That's Ben Schwartz and another blue character. Yep. <laughs> or whatever, right? Yeah, I think actually that applies more whenever a celebrity does a voice. I think that definitely takes me way more, takes me out of the experience a little more. Mm-hmm. But like when Roger Craig Smith does Sonic, like I just hear Sonic because Roger mm-hmm. Craig Smith didn't mean anything to me before that he was just some dude. And after the fact, I learned it, which like, oh, he brings Sonic to life and the animators, of course. I feel like that's something that not enough people say when they talk about voice actors or I guess video game characters or any character for that matter. But when I hear Ben Schwartz, like he did a good enough job that I started to believe him as Sonic, but it's definitely still kind of hard to not think of him, especially when the voice actor or the celebrity has a very distinct voice. But yeah, you know, and I think again, it goes back to the like point of entry thing. Cause you know, with Ben Schwartz, you may know him as Jean Ralphio on Parks and Rec. You may know him as in DuckTales. You may know him from all these different things. So you hear, especially that, when they do the same just... voice among like between characters, like he, Basically, oh, the yeah. same voice yeah. in the DuckTales show and the Ninja Turtles show and in Sonic. Like, yeah. especially because I started watching some DuckTales, like, I came around to it and I'm starting to enjoy it. Um, I, I don't know what it had in the beginning, but point is, yeah, like, I am starting to enjoy it more, but now I hear that duck when I'm hearing the turtle talk, which I believe he does, mm-hmm. Leonardo. Mm-hmm. He, and everything like, oh, that's blue and animated is him. <laughs> Suppose huh. that. If it's blue, it's him. Basically, think about it. Every character he does is blue. Yes, he does. Huh. Actually, I'm not sure if he's the blue one, but I'm guessing he's the blue uh, one. Well, he's the blue one. I know that because it's a running joke that he's always the blue character. Ah. Oh, that's right. Star Wars. So. Yeah, anyway, (laughs) sorry. That was a tangent. Yeah, so when this game came out, damn, like, I mean, the competition was pretty heavy. And you guys that grew up in N64 times would definitely know because we had Marker 64, Diddy Kong Racing. I didn't play F0X. But I don't know. Neither did I. I just wanted to That's definitely the most comparable game to this. But I mean, I mean, did you guys like love Mario Kart 64? I think we liked it, but we played it because it was still like maybe our favorite racing game for a while. But then when Diddy Kong Racing came out, I felt like that was like immediately better. I think it was just the lighter control and the more balanced gameplay. I think I don't know. It just didn't feel as slippery. But here comes Star Wars that. Oh, go for it. Sorry. I, I was I just going to say, question you, you, I just kept going. <laughs> you pulled a me. You pulled a me. Here's a question. I won't let you answer it. I'm just going to keep talking. No, uh, I was just going to say, I feel like I had a weird relationship with those two games. Okay, that sounded weird. But I had, like, so I... <laughs> it's complicated. When I was a kid, I Mario Kart did some things. No, when I was a kid, um, I used to go... I'm, I'm an only child. So my parents used to go drop me off at this place. It was basically for where kids go hang out and parents don't have to worry about it. It was like a play place of sorts. But they had video games. So Mario Kart 64, I would play there initially. When the N64 came out, they got them early at that place. Then I got my N64, but I already played Mario Kart. So I decided to get Diddy Kong Racing. So I played... I got Diddy Kong Racing because I am an only child. So I'm at home playing by myself. So I never actually directly pit them against each other, which I know is weird because everyone did. But in my mind, it was Mario Kart's the multiplayer one and Diddy Kong's the single player one. And it never has ever huh. crossed my mind of, well, which one's better? Because they are so siloed off in my head because of my experiences being different that like I literally think of them as like companion pieces almost, which is not what anyone else thinks <laughs> in the world. It is a good thing, though. And I guess definitely <laughs> that. I mean, the single player of Diddy Kong is definitely robust enough that it could be seen as just that. But I mean, mm-hmm. it was just a way I thought it was a much better competitive game. The fact that you could store your balloons and pile them up to upgrade them. And the hidden mechanics of like releasing the gas over the booth so that you can go faster. 
I mean, mm-hmm. it had that depth, but it also wasn't very like the fastest game, the fastest racing game. Yeah, I and mean, that, and so when when it came out on DS, you know, when they got Rare to oh, yeah. work for them again, and then Mario Kart DS was there, I did find myself gravitating more towards Mario Kart if I wanted to do online. Like Diddy Kong Racing had online, but it did feel slower because it literally was slower. But yeah, it is more strategic. I'll give you that. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I love those like party elements of the items and stuff, but. I mean, I think the only other game right before we got Star Wars was um, Cruising USA, which didn't have any items. I think that's the only game I actually really liked that featured real vehicles um, growing up. I mean, there were no items. It was just straight-up arcade. Not a simulator, but I mean, it definitely has a different feel than Mario Kart. I mean, you're kind of going straight. It was a traditional, like, 90s arcade racer, yeah. Cruising Cruising USA, Cruising World, yeah. But yeah, I mean, like, it was, somehow it was really fun without any items. I think that it also kind of introduced me to that playstyle. But Pod Racers, I mean, that game doesn't use any items. It, it's kind of, its tracks are not as crazy looking as, um, I guess like visually as like some of those other games, but design wise, like, damn, like it does a lot for it. And just the sense of speed, like this game, if it wasn't for Star Wars Pod Racing, Star Wars Racer Episode One. <laughs> I'm gonna keep saying it wrong. Star Wars Episode <laughs> One Racer. There you go. I probably like I probably wouldn't have gotten into F Zero GX as much as I did because those games definitely share a lot. They're still very different mechanically, but like just like the sense of speed that you get from both of those games is really really great, and it kind of I don't know makes me wonder why that game hasn't been remastered. The way like a lot of these other ones have, or why there hasn't been a more modern one? Was there ever a sequel to Star Wars Race Episode One Racer? Um, I think they did a Dreamcast port about a year after the N sixty four version, and I think it stopped there. But what what's weird is Pod Racer, like Nintendo, pumped it up so much back in the day. I remember it was like a flagship game for the N sixty four because it was Star Wars Revival, and they had an exclusive Star Wars racing game in tandem with the Revival in theaters like it was a big thing it was on the cover of nintendo power it was like one of their big things at e3 that year it was actually the e3 issue of nintendo power like it was they pumped it up pretty big and like like i said there are other you know rogue squadron shadow of the empire like n64 was like the star wars console and to tie something in with the new star wars movie right when it was coming out or shortly thereafter was like a big deal especially since you know n64's lineup was smaller overall than playstations so yeah they they really promoted it yeah huh that's really cool. I actually didn't know it kind of held a, a pretty important spot. I do remember seeing a Star yeah. Trooper on the box of the N64 box, but I mm-hmm. think that was for something else. So It was uh, Shadow of the Empire, which they bun- I think they bundled at one point with the N64, or they did it as part of a marketing campaign or something. Like Star Wars has been very – up until the GameCube era, Star Wars was pretty closely tied with Nintendo. LucasArts and them had a pretty good relationship. And then Rogue Leader was a launch channel GameCube because of that relationship – or Rogue Squadron 2, sorry. Then Rogue Leader came later. Um, but then it, I think someone at Lucas was like, wait a minute, why don't we make more money? And they started to put it on all the platforms. I think Rogue Leader might have been the last exclusive Star Wars for Nintendo. Thank you for asking, Angel. Uh, I do enjoy uh, Diddy Kong Racing more than Mario Kart 64. <laughs> Where did you disappear <laughs> this whole time? <laughs> I think we're just waiting for, for us to stop talking. <laughs> What did you like more about it, though? Was it also kind of what we mentioned? Like the, uh, I guess, the story mode or maybe the more competitive or balanced items? Yes. 
I'll, I'll just say yes. <laughs> All right, keep going. All right, so as far as like the structure of the game, I was kind of different than what I remembered. I thought there was actually like a campaign mode, but it's just basically called tournament mode. It's basically the same thing because that is how you progress and unlock things. But essentially, you start with like a basic cup, and then you do the first, and you could do any of the first seven races. Yep, there's seven races of one cup in this game, and you could tackle them in any order you want. And if you win first place, you unlock that track's like, I guess, favor to win or that track's champion because each track takes place on a planet in a certain section. And those little intro cutscenes that introduce that planet are, I don't know, it, they do seem cheesy and like, yeah, they're haven't aged very well but they do a lot to get you like in the right mood for the race or for i don't know i guess what you're about to encounter like, even the snow areas the space areas the fire areas like i don't know it's it's cool like it actually makes me go like oh wow like the star wars universe is very grand or i don't know it makes me think about it more which is interesting because i don't know maybe it's because i we've just played so many mario karts but like whenever we go to like a new track or something i don't often even think about like oh where is this in the mario world i just kind of think like oh it was just made for this game but i don't know i think unless it strikes a real chord with me if anything i think like a lot of us were confused when like mario kart 8 rainbow road was shown and we're like wait it's not an actual rainbow road it's just like the space station i don't know it was i feel like it was kind of disappointing but still a tough track but yeah you go to the the tournament mode you unlock your characters and when you feel ready you go to the next cup which does increase in difficulty a little but there are essentially 14 different aliens you can unlock from those areas and i believe there's one more seven course track after that and then you get to the invitational ones and those you have to place first through third in order to continue and as i mentioned earlier i remember this game feeling very tough or just being like a notoriously difficult game. Like I, I guess you've remembered it as being as hard as like Zero GX to get through. Cause that game, Jesus, if you played it on the hard difficulty, which we did, my brother and I, we beat it. That thing was a monster. Like sometimes it would go like months just trying to get through one level. Like the one I'm thinking about in particular right now is when you're on the Blue Falcon on, it's like a long, dark freeway and you have a bomb over your head. And you have to get through the whole area without crashing too much. Otherwise, the, the bomb will explode or under the time limit. Otherwise, it'll explode. And as you go on, the track gets narrower and narrower. And yeah, it feels almost impossible. But they expect you to do it. And we did. So I thought it was that hard. Turns out that was just younger me and my brother not bothering with this whole mechanic that the game has in it. Which is upgrading and repairing your ship. Um, between races and before races, you have the option to go to, I forgot the name of that blue elephant bug dude, um, that speaks in a very oh, specific Wado? accent. Well, I just said, Wado, I yeah, <laughs> yeah, that yeah, guy. <laughs> and he's talking the whole time. He's all like, oh, they come, they don't buy. How do they find me? Uh, he says that a lot. Please do the entire podcast me? in that voice. <laughs> <laughs> they kill me, they don't buy. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, he's there just um, throwing out voice clip after voice clip, which it's kind of funny because he just, like, repeats them so often. But your ship is, like, split into a bunch of different categories. You have your repairability, your max 
max speed, your acceleration, your turning, even your repair um, function has its own meter that has to be maintained. And, you know, you also have like durability just because your ship can't take damage, which I'll get into in a sec. But every race gives you some money. You use that money to buy those parts. You also have a junkyard where you can buy some not as great parts, but if it gives your your ship a boost, which they're kind of permanent. Like, as long as you buy droids, which you can buy those little tiny droids with the little PlayStation Eye heads, I guess if they're around, um, they will repair your ship and they'll repair any of those parts that start to degrade over time. So if I bought something that increases my max speed, um, that generator thing will only last me for so long before I have to replace it. And that's only in the campaign. When you're playing multiplayer, all these things are just set to their default. So I guess that would make, in theory, some characters better than others. But in the campaigns, you could literally upgrade any part. You could win with anybody. And I just happened to gravitate to some character named like Mars Guo. I don't know why. I just think I like the design of his ship. Which leads into a nice segue with the design of these characters. Because, dang, like... There's a lot of variety in these aliens. They went all out. I don't know if they were going by like a a guide or something, or oh, they someone told them where all that stuff is so like canonized. They definitely or, were. I mean, but when you look at some of these designs, like some of them literally just look like mini Satan with like a clown hat or something. Or I don't know, like these aliens <laughs> just looks they extremely varied. Some have multiple arms. One looks like if imagine Mike Wazowski from Monsters Inc. If he had Two eyes, but his eyes protruded out like a snail, but that same kind of body and creepy lips. You have like some little rat looking people, some weird thing that has like a dragon head and a weird body, something that looks like the stuff of nightmares. It just has like just human enough, like a baby to have these giant creepy eyes, but he looks like a, he was sunburnt, but he has like a, I don't know, looks disgusting, but they're all over the place. (laughs) In a cool way, like, it's just so varied, like, you could tell they had a lot of fun with these models, especially because you see the CG version, or, like, their character portrait, and then you see the actual model, and you're like, whoa, did not expect <laughs> it to look like that. And, and that's not even to mention the, the ships, the ship designs themselves, which actually hold up really well. I don't know what it was about the specific ships, but the way they're modeled, they look I don't know, like I said, they hold up pretty well, I would say. And they all look extremely varied. Some have giant turbines, some have tiny little turbines that may or may not accept acceleration. This is how they look. Some don't even really look like pod racing ships. They just look like tiny little, I don't know, like spaceship TIE fighters that you would find. Not TIE fighters, but they don't really go with the mold. So it's great to see that kind of flexibility. So there's definitely going to be a ship you like. And yeah, these upgrades essentially make a big difference when you're racing because like i said before it felt really hard now i am basically having no trouble staying in first place the entire time and while that might seem like a bad thing um i know like staying in first place for a long time sometimes does get kind of boring especially like in mario kart um not to toot my own horn oh that's a car pun um well done yeah beautiful yeah (laughs) Like, I think because of this game's sense of speed that is somehow really well-preserved. Um, I don't know if the port came with... What did they change? Like, I'm guessing they obviously up it. Because everything they looks up- crisp. I believe 
they took the Dreamcast version and up that. So the Dreamcast I mean, version already was a slight enhancement over the N64 version. So it's not like your total bare-bones N64 game that's just in, you know, HD now. I think they did the Dreamcast one, which means, yeah. you know, slightly better textures, slightly sharper shapes, and, you know, that sort of stuff. They, I mean, they're anti-aliasing, presumably, if yeah, any. Yeah, because the, the main menu screen does look like you took a small JPEG and just blew it up. Right. But the game itself is, like, crisp as heck. Like, it's so sharp, and... I mean, even though everything looks very, like, polygonal, it looks really nice. Like, especially, like, in races, like, you sometimes don't even notice, especially because you're going so fast. And, I mean, you're going really fast. Like, I don't even think F-Zero goes this fast normally. I think it's only when you're, like, boosting that you reach most of these speeds. But, you know, it's just, like, the way the track's designed. And the way this game works is kind of weird. Like... Is both simple and more. I don't know. I guess it has like it definitely has. I feel like more depth than Mario Kart, but it's also more. It's also simpler in other ways. Like for instance, this is one of those racing games where you have to hold um, R two to accelerate, and there is no speed boost at the beginning. Like you know the three two one, you have to time everything. You can just straight up hold it down, and you'll go as fast as you could possibly go, unless there is a hidden mechanic that I'm just not aware of, which there very well could be, but. That is not that big of a deal. What is kind of unfortunate, I mean, maybe you could change it, but to repair your ship, which I guess I should just go into now, um, as you're racing, you could bump into other racers, you could bump into the walls, you could bump into obstacles on the road, and your ship will start to take damage. And each turbine, because you have two in the front, has its own individual health, which is represented in the bottom left with a little icon for each little turbine. And believe it or not, like... If there are three sections to each turbine. So the top, the I guess the front of the turbine could be damaged individually, the center or the bottom. And if they're both blue, that is essentially like perfect health. And they start changing in a gradient from like green to yellow to red being any little touch is going to cause it to explode. And sure enough, if you do damage it enough, and in some cases you can auto kill, your, just one shot yourself. But for the most part, It'll, once it turns green or yellow, you can start to repair it. And if you're repairing the left turbine, that turbine will actually shut down and it will affect your steering or vice versa. If you repair the right one, that one will shut down and affect your steering as well. So it's kind of cool that you have to manage like when is a good time to repair because you don't want to repair when a sharp turn is coming up. You don't really want to repair when there's a lot of people around you, but sometimes you don't really have that chance because you're kind of paying the price for the driving or I guess the lack of control you gave yourself. Another pretty noteworthy thing about this game is that, from what I can tell, there is no drifting whatsoever. There is no way for you to drift or to, like, take a corner sharply or even more sharply. And that's because the turning is already, I don't want to say loose, but I guess it's incredibly, well, it's like the, literally the opposite of what I'm about to say. It's incredibly tight in the sense that the <laughs> I don't want to say loose because it's actually like the antonym I'll... of that word. <laughs> it's like the reason I, I I almost wanted to use the word loose is because if I it turns a lot. Like you can move, you have a lot of freedom of movement. It almost feels like you're controlling it with a mouse. Like if I wiggle, if I move the joystick to the left, that will turn to the left ridiculously fast. 
but almost as fast as you like turn it, you can let go and it'll stop. So it just feels incredibly responsive, but you have a lot of movement, which is, I feel, why they probably didn't bother with drifting. Because you do have a ton of sharp turns that sometimes just releasing the brakes a little or just letting go of the gas will be enough to help you do the turn, but sometimes you don't even need it at all. Like, you'll be able to take turns as sharp as they make them without ever needing to feel like you had to drift, which is pretty cool. Like, I, I feel like other games that don't have steering that feels this satisfying are kind of what end up losing me. Like the Wipeout games, I mean, they're really fun and I like them. They're pretty much this game, but with items. I don't know, the controls has never felt right to me. They always felt a little more slippery. I think I think that's like probably the biggest downside that I feel like a lot of developers feel they have to make futuristic racers or futuristic racing games have slippery feeling cars because, you know, they don't have wheels. They're not touching the ground. So it makes sense that if you flick the control stick to the left, it's going to, like, slide Glide. a little bit into position. Yeah. But Ex- Extreme game... G also is kind of like that. But Extreme G found, like, the balance between, like, F-Zero and Wipeout. And... I mean, F-Zero's, you know, like, not the balance, like, there's anything wrong with F-Zero, but it was, like, the middle ground of those two. So it's interesting how every futuristic game does it slightly differently. Yeah, It's all I the mean... same concept. It's just, like, a spectrum of slipperiness, I guess. And I feel like that slipperiness is always what's, like, I was kind of annoying or something mm-hmm. I never really just like to get through. And yeah, I know like that's how they are, but they don't have to be. I mean, this game kind of proves it. Like it doesn't have that and it just feels really great. Like it feels like I could just focus on like not crashing and the speed of it, which using the D-pad, you can actually change your perspective. And while it is cool to go into first person mode and just see how fast you're going, which it already looks fast, but I mean, things are just flying by like, ridiculously speeds but when you're turning um the the pod racer has a tendency to kind of flip on its side like it'll do like it kind of i guess to achieve the turn it'll really bank that turn but in the first person camera instead of thing that instead of staying level when you make a turn it actually turns with the pod racer as if the camera is like parented to it so when you're going through a very zigzaggy area in first person, it's going to get very dizzying because... Yeah, I was going to say, gonna, that it, sounds like a horrible design decision. Yeah, because it, it no feels like the camera's on a rocker. That's, yeah. And there are some instances where your where one of your engines will explode, and if you're in first person mode, um, your your camera will actually spin 360 degrees as you're going forward because your character is also spinning that way. Which in that case, it's a really cool feeling. I mean, it seems like, oh, that's pretty much what they're seeing. That's kind of scary. But, Until you puke. <laughs> but if you're playing with the camera pulled out in third person, I mean, I, that's definitely the way to go. I typically like to play with the camera pulled all, as far out as possible, just so I can see ahead of me as possible, as far as possible. But, yeah, that's kind of how the damage on the camera works in this game. But the part that, and I guess because I didn't bother to look at the manual, um... I knew there was a way to boost because I knew that mechanic existed, but I just couldn't figure it out. Like, it wasn't apparent. It wasn't like, all right, every time I reach max speed, you have a dial on the side that tells you how fast you're going. And the numbers reach, like, in the hundreds. So, you know, it's like one of those games that look how fast we're going. But there's a separate meter on the side that fills up. And if you reach your top speed, um, like, it will cap at that number and you'll have a little circle that lights up. And when you get that circle... Um, I was just pressing every other button, nothing, like nothing happens. And apparently what you have to do is hold up on the left stick 
and a th- that meter will begin to fill up again with, I believe, I think it fills up in black. And then once it reaches all the way to the top, and you pretty much have to be holding straight forward, and you have to be maintaining, I guess, your... I guess that speed as much as possible. If you turn too sharply, you start to lose speed and the meter starts to go down. But that meter fills up pretty quickly. And when it goes all the way up, it will turn yellow. And when that happens, you can then press A to activate your turbo speed. And it's not like a turbo where you have to hold A down as long as possible. You can just tap it just to trigger it. And then you'll get that very satisfying like engine explosion or I guess that engine sound effect that just sounds like you're going a lot faster. And then suddenly you're just flying and your turning does get affected. You start to turn a lot with a lot less accuracy. And if you touch any wall, it's an automatic death. But with how fast you're going, like, damn, I think that's like when the game just like really just like grabs you. It just feels, I don't think I've ever really felt where a game just kind of like, that's why I kind of felt transcending. Like it just made it feel like, wow, oh God, I almost like unintentionally just quoted the movie. Um, but yeah, like, we're like, wow, this is yeah, I was about to say, <laughs> is that where, it, I was about to ask you, is that where you finally go, wow, now this is pod racing? <laughs> yeah, like, it, it made me, usually when I revisit a game, like a really old game I haven't played in, like, forever, I, I usually end up with some semblance of disappointment. Like, Luigi's mentioned, like, oh, this game didn't look as great as I remembered it, or this game was a lot easier than I remembered, or it, you know, like, there's nostalgia typically ends up being a negative when you revisit the thing that's giving you the nostalgia than a positive because, you know, you're seeing it through those colored glasses. Like, I bet if Jason... Actually, no. Um, Star Fox 64 has a too tight of a grip don't, on Don't him. you dare. Don't you dare. <laughs> but I feel like if he played it, he might be like, okay, it's not as great as it was. I, I have played why. it, and I have I, not been like that. I have done like, that. I did on the 3DS. My N64 is still attached to my TV. I, I stand by Star Fox. You played it on the 3DS, Yes, that was an upgrade, so that's fine. I've played it on the N64. The only thing that's weird is because I have a widescreen TV, it stretches it funny, but it still holds up. I will, if you want, play it between this episode and next, again, all the way through. The N64 is attached to the TV still, and I will report back next episode how it holds up. Yeah, the only thing I know everyone can agree is that, at least in the N64 version, the multiplayer has not held up. It's definitely That is correct. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I know that was like one of people's favorite parts, but I mean, things definitely get better. And I don't know, dog fighting like strictly only having the option to do dog fights gets boring really fast. I don't know what it is about that specific type of play mode, but st- even in Star Fox Assault, which I love to death, like just the dog fighting sections, or maybe they're just not my cup of tea. But when you have multiplayer and you're able to go from land to landmaster to R wing, like in one session i just jump out between them and happen you want to those were always a blast but oh yeah assaults multiplayer is way better no no doubt yeah single player but yeah. mm. <laughs> but multiplayer yeah yeah the point is like this is one of the few games where i felt like it actually lived up to the nostalgia like as soon as you start playing like the i mean you know the graphics aren't going to be as good going in but the gameplay just not only did it hold up but I felt like I was able to appreciate it on a whole new level because, like I said, I actually started playing with the with the upgrading whole mechanic of it that I completely ignored. I started appreciating the level, the track design a lot more. Um, you know, I've also just have way more experience in video games under my belt, so I've just 
I'm able to just like be better at it and just get further. Like I've definitely already started playing through tracks that I've never played before or tracks that I previously thought were way too hard. I'm able to kind of fly by, but just be like, well, this is really cool. Like there are some tracks where you go into a tunnel and you're pretty much flying. Like you're dodging meteors, you're going like left and right. And I don't know. And then it, it's, it's like Mario Kart 8 track levels. Or actually, no, it's like F0GX level design before F0GX. I don't know how crazy they got an F0X, so I'm just going to ignore that game exists for now because obviously I can't say anything to its nature. But dang, this game really held up and it's just pure fun. And even like some little tidbits of fun facts that I had no idea. Um, I was playing with this, I was playing this game with this friend, um, yesterday that also grew up with it. And, we were both, um, oh, Nigel, he's been on this podcast before. Hey, Nigel, if you're listening, loser. He claims um, he does, so uh, we'll quiz him if he heard about so, it. So we had, like, we raced seven times. Um, he won the last one by one second. But before we did the last race, um, you know, we were both, like, cocky and competitive as we usually are. We're like, oh, I'm going to destroy you, and... After we do the first race, I had beaten him by, like, about a minute. Like, it was a pretty huge gap, and it seemed like, yeah, I don't think he was using his boosting us the way he should, or maybe he just was crashing too much. But, I don't know, this, it's just pure competition. I feel like it's, it can be both really fun and appeal to people that don't play too arcadey of a game, but also, I don't know, I feel like it, it hits a right balance where it just like appeals to everyone, just pure unadulterated fun. And the, the fact that it's a Star being, Wars game, huh? As I said, irony, irony being when it was fifteen dollars, you said no way, that's way too much for what this is. And now, I feel like you'd pay like a hundred dollars for it. I definitely wouldn't, but I would pay like <laughs> twenty. But I only paid seven. <laughs> well, the sale, yeah, and that sale seven fifty, and that sale ended already for anyone that wants to enter this magical world that you've been in. <laughs> uh, I mean, this game deserves, like, an actual remake, and it really, or just, like, a sequel, because I feel it has so much potential, and I did not think, like, I think what really hits home to me, or the fact that makes me really gush about this game, is the fact that I have sunk a lot of hours into it already in just single player, because, unfortunately, they did not implement a multiplayer, or, I mean, not a multiplayer, it does have a two-player mode. But they did not implement online multiplayer in this remake or in this port, which I felt would have been like amazing to have, even if it's just against two people. But they didn't do it. So that kind of killed it for me because I felt like if I was going to revisit an old game, I'd want to play it with, you know, with Nigel or some other people. Because, I mean, yeah, I mean, at least I have Elvis, so at least it's that and it will be offline. But at least online, in theory, you would have been able to have your full screen and still play against someone else. But apparently that doesn't detract from it. Like, it's still fun enough on its own, and I feel like it has enough content, and the racing is just really fun that I feel that alone just, like, justifies getting it. Like, compared to Fast Racing League, or even from the footage I saw I've read out, but at least Fast Racing League or the... Is that what it's called? Yeah. And the, the so. Switch... Fa- fast Racing, not League. Fast Racing and Fast Racing Neo. 
Ah, faster thing, Neo. Yes, like those games are fun. Um, they don't have items. They run on that polarity thing where if you hit a shoulder button, you change between blue and yellow. And if you're yellow when you're hitting over yellow boost, you'll go fast. But if you are yellow and hit a blue boost, you go slow. So you have to keep changing your colors to match that. I don't know. That game, for some reason, didn't capture that. That was one of the first eShop games on the Wii U and the Switch. And I remember getting it both times, thinking it would satisfy that F-Zero Star Wars itch, but it just didn't. And yeah, I think that's a testament to this game that even to much more modern games, like it's a combination of simple, easy to pick up controls, but also having tremendous depth that it's just really fun. Like I don't, I can't think of many racing games where I just simply enjoy playing it in single player. I would not play Mario Kart single player outside of just unlocking the stars because I feel I have to. Like, it, I hate to say it, but like, it almost kind of feels like something I have to do. It's obligatory. But, I mean, it does come with the benefit of letting me memorize and just like learn the tracks before I play online. But I would just rather play online. Like, I can see myself and I have been like coming back to this game just to play the single player. And that definitely caught me by surprise. Like, I, Lucas Games has definitely been torn apart. Like, it's pretty sure it's not a thing anymore, right? So uh, they true. just license out Star Wars to other studios, yeah. It's not even other studios, own. it's literally just EA at this point. True. true. No, that's not true, because this was a spear, or whatever their name is. So they still... Multiple, multiple people have different things they can do with Star Wars, but yes, in terms of, like, big new projects, it's EA, yeah. Uh, well, I guess that kind of makes the, the dream of a sequel or something like that. Unless EA hands a, li- a little the effect. burnout team or something. I mean, then again, I mean, this game, I mean, it did get ported right now. So there is clearly an indication to them that it was popular or that like it felt a good idea to port this game in particular. Or mm-hmm. did... Yeah, there's enough of a market for the retro nostalgia of Star Wars games that I guess they felt it was worthwhile. Which makes you wonder if they're ever going to do like a Rogue Squadron like one yeah, so... combo pack thing. So I guess my only hope now is that this game sells enough that it, I don't know, I guess it sparks them too. Like, hey, we probably should get on this because there's a market for a modern version of this game with online and with all the the crazy fruits and, wi- <laughs> fruits and whistles, bells and whistles. Because, geez, like, as long as they don't go too crazy, you know, like, just kind of keep the gameplay the way it is and then just go, like, nuts with the tracks because, like, Man, like this game would be amazing with like modern flourishes because it's still great right now. And yeah, it's a it's just a real shame if that doesn't happen because I feel like this game definitely takes like one of like the nice pillars like easily of a type of racing game. Like Mario Kart will always be, I guess, my go to, I guess, competitive party racer. Um, if Diddy Kong Racing was more accessible, it'd probably be that one. But this is the one we have online. Um, and while it doesn't replace GX, I think it stands alone separate from GX. And I really, really appreciate it for that. Because, you know, GX is a way more aggressive game. You actually have, like, attacks with your vehicle. But that's kind of its identity. Like, just a vehicle combat, kind of like Twisted Metal. But, you know, this game deserves more attention than it gets. And... Yeah, I highly recommend it, especially while it's seven bucks. I hope it's still seven bucks. Maybe that deal left ended already, but 
It's over. Yeah. It's over. Yeah. I uh, think well, um I it's think still you... worth fifteen, but but that's my very brief impressions <laughs> on Star Wars. Alright, well this 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 was a this was a great episode. Uh, everybody follow us a... on Twitter <laughs> yeah. or YouTube or random yeah, Nintendo for, for those... Is it forty nine minutes? Jesus. For those mm. who joined us almost an hour ago. You may recall we were supposed to be talking about at some point the Nintendo Direct Mini and all the stuff that came with that. Uh, and normally we just jump into it after we've been playing, but given that it's all Nintendo Direct Mini related, why don't we just go straight into Nintendo Direct Mini? Um, I think I it, deserve that... a break. <laughs> what? what? I, thought, I think I deserve a break. Yeah, you can have a bit of a break. Um, so yeah, it was. Um, this was the final partner showcase. First of all, that was a lot about star wars but yeah this was the final partner showcase of the year which is why um you know it was the opportunity for nintendo to once again bring up the most important game of the year bakugan now available on nintendo switch uh but no it actually you know there were i think these sound like i'm sure it is not um but yeah i i do think like these last couple partner showcases have really got leonidas footing I, I know, but apparently it doesn't matter. It's still got like a six from IGN <laughs> or something. So, um, but I, oh, uh, it's way better than I thought it was going to get, honestly. I actually don't know if that's <laughs> the right score. I might be misremembering, but I do think Bakugan aside, like over the like so, the small arch of like, st- like the small story arc, if you will, of the partner showcases, I feel like these last couple have been pretty good. And this one had like a fair amount of stuff. Um, you know, we finally got an update on some games that people really wanted to see more of. No More Heroes 3, uh, Bravely Default 2, which, I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that, but uh, no, <laughs> oh, I'm gonna take that as a no. I mean, I have two thoughts. One is the art style looks really nice. I was like, oh, it hasn't come out yet. Yeah, well, out. yeah. Three thoughts. One, it's not out. Two, the art style looks good. And three, that name is still dumb. You can't be the third game and call yourself the second game. But anyway, um, I really, really, I think one of the more interesting things. I know, I know. I should know all your Kingdom Heart name references, uh, name explanations you've given us. But yeah, really, I think the one... Oh, yeah, yeah. Kingdom Hearts... No, oh, my bad. I was thinking Final Fantasy VI is Final Fantasy III, but that's for a different Or Final reason. Fantasy X-2, which normally would be called twelve in most people's vernacular. Well, no, because that's a sequel to Part Ten. I know, I know, I know. But anyway, really, what, and <laughs> I this know, is it a sequel to Bravely Default other, and not yeah. Bravely Second. So. Bravely th- but yeah, re- yeah, that's, um, yeah. <laughs> but really, I think the most interesting thing from the mini was this seemingly out-of-nowhere push of cloud streaming games on Switch. Although, to be fair, it's not entirely out-of-nowhere. Japan's had it for a while in a few different iterations. There was Resident Evil 7, there was Assassin's Creed Odyssey, Fantasy Star Online 2. Those have been there for a couple years now. But in the West, what was holding it back was the concern of latency issues and traveling all that data across bigger spaces literally than um japan uh and it seems like nintendo's just casually like well here it is we did it so in the presentation they announced the first two games that will work via the cloud control and hitman 3 uh the former of which was launched (laughs) hitman yeah i I did say i i i I realized i said i'm like it sounds like i said pikmin maybe i should back that up and i said keep plowing through and then you called me on it hitman 3 (laughs) my name is is john hitman (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah whose last name is hitman by the way angel <laughs> uh but hi i'm i'm bob hitman i'm gonna be killing you tonight uh but no the the control launch day and date with the presentation hitman 3 that's m-a-n is coming next year uh you guys have both tried control already right like you've done the whole cloud thing or at least the free portion i've controlled it yeah 
How is it? I have not had a chance to try it. How is it? What is it like playing a game in the cloud but on your Switch? Like, how's the latency and everything? Like, what, what was your guys' experience with it? Uh, surprisingly, the latency was great. Um, I've, I'm a huge fan of Control. I played it. Well, man, when did that game come out? 2018? I think. I, uh, I want to say 18 or 19. Yeah, won, I think so. I feel it was 19. I might have been 19. I, I think it won Game of the Year last year in a bunch of places. Yeah, I don't remember it. Really? During any Time's, of the 2018 is... Game Buzz. Because that was like Red Dead Redemption year, God of War. Oh, you're right, you're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was last year. I was going to say, time is a construct that has ceased to have meaning in 2020. So 18 and 19 might be the same, really. Yeah. Who knows? Uh, no, It was definitely one of my favorite games of that year. And so I was skeptical, skeptical going into this, uh, just because cloud gaming, I haven't had the best experience with it, even with my awesome internet. Uh, I tried. Wait, don't you have the Stadia? No, 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 no. You, you, you considered it, right? And I then considered you it and then before. I canceled it. Yeah. Uh, cause I did try the project. What did they call it before? Uh, I think it was just called Project Cloud. When uh, yeah, I was gonna say, I think they, it's they let people try out Assassin's Creed Odyssey, and mm-hmm. I have awesome internet, and that still ran pretty bad with some major latency, and so I was playing Control in handheld mode, and there's two versions of the game that you can launch. There's the performance mode, and then the uh, I, man, I forgot what they uh, enhanced graphics mode, and the performance mode, which uh runs at 60 frames, like, ran amazingly well. Uh, I felt almost no latency. There was definitely a couple of hiccups where the uh, the game would freeze for, like, a split second, but I'd get right back into it immediately. So, uh, like, I, I was actually was really amazed that, that it really worked that well. Angel, did you experience the same on your internet when you tried it? Yeah, I had pretty much no latency, and it definitely gave me that feeling like, Wow, this is like a streamed game. Like it doesn't really feel like it. Like it was just kind of weird knowing that I was streaming it. Um, I don't know if it was maybe visually because of my internet or anything, but while it looked good and like everything was presentable, like it, I don't know. It almost felt like I was playing with like a filter on top, like a slight grain that almost mm. made it feel like I was playing off of like someone else's stream, like a video or something like that. I don't know. Hmm. But did did you get that vibe, Kevin? But 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 I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the original control looks like running on on Mac. So maybe it could look. Maybe it does look like that. But I had no frame of reference. I had no control, if you will, no control group. So I play, I played a handheld mode <laughs> uh, mainly. I didn't play it on handheld. Mode. Oh wow. Yeah, I played a handheld, and it looks incredible. Like compared to anything else that's on the system, honestly. Concerning it's also right. being streamed like. There's a there's a huge issue obviously with with like bit rates and stuff like that which will cause the games to look blocky or not not necessarily blocky but you'll see like the squares right you know what I'm mm-hmm. talking about mm-hmm. uh, yep yep especially in the performance mode I saw none of that now to be fair like I said I was playing handheld mode so it is possible that they would be there if I was playing it docked but aside from that it was like like I have a pretty beefy uh, computer so I was running the game like incredibly well so the game looks amazing but the game looked just Before its time it or like, still no still oh man control is a beautiful game control. oh no 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 your, your computer like it's pretty beefy for its time or it's still considered pretty beefy i i, I would still consider pretty beefy um 
but uh what was i saying uh like <laughs> not that it was one to one exactly shrunken down to the screen but it i still would consider this game especially in the performance mode looking pretty pretty good like i don't think obviously the pc version is going to look better but it still right. looked like the game was running on high settings and then the the problem is that the hands I did try the enhanced graphics mode, and mm-hmm. it actually looked worse to me. Uh, I don't know what they're doing with that with that mode to make it look better, but I, maybe it's just the fluidity of the uh, sixty frames a second or or higher than thirty frames that that just made right. it look a little bit better. I, I don't know, but um. So is it yeah. default to performance mode, or I assume you choose you when you launch graphic? the game, you choose which uh, mode you okay. want. Interesting, because yeah, it's 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 good in a way that your experience was light, and that Angel, I guess that the only real issue to you was it felt kind of filtered. But it's good that the experience was so positive because I feel like in my mind, like this is the beginning of what's going to become a much larger. It definitely feels like a viable way, to yeah, get absolutely, to have those games because you could totally play them and have, in theory, you know, like the same experience overall. Like, I mean, once the game is said and done. Both people are going to be saying the same thing about the game, except maybe one will gush about yeah. the visuals a little more. But at yeah, the end of the day, we know that's not that important. And I definitely don't think it's a coincidence, you know, whatsoever, that Nintendo pushed cloud gaming in this direct presentation mere weeks before next gen. Mm-hmm. Like, this was so obviously them reassuring the Switch audience that, yes, they're prepared when third party games are going to become too much for the Switch's internal power to handle. And, and uh, you know, as it is, like, more powerful consoles to leak. If they keep going that way, but obviously there's never a replacement for it, unless right, streaming right. does get to that point. That just, yeah, like even digital foundry would have to be like, there's no difference. There's literally no difference. Right, and that's never gonna. There's no way there'll ever be zero difference. There's always gonna be a little difference. But what's kind of nice about this is like, as it is, like there's so many powerful games on current gen systems. Never mind next gen that. um you know, aren't on Switch or even those that were promised to come to Switch. Some are like stuck in limbo because of what it takes to downscale them. Like who knows what happened to Doom Eternal? That went from day to day, day and date launch with the other versions to MIA. Apex Legends, EA and Respawn just delayed to 2021 on Switch because they need to optimize it better. Um, so it's, it's interesting that like Nintendo's now just like, or how about this? Which, you know, that, that's kind of, um, it's, it's not even like a power thing. I feel like it's also kind of like a a, a resource thing too. Because like I was reading, I was reading an interview with uh, Nintendo Life um, where one of the guys at the studio behind Control Remedy uh, was saying how the problem for them with doing a straight port wasn't like they couldn't do the port. It was the effort because they had to get their custom engine over. They had to teach an outside studio how to do it if they didn't want to do it themselves. And that means revealing how the proprietary engine works. They don't have the resources to like do all that. Like, it's not that it couldn't be run. It was the resources or lack thereof to make it a reality. And Nintendo basically just gave everyone this, like, shortcut to bring all their games over a Switch, no problem. Like, in my mind, it kind of reminds me of, I don't know um, if you guys remember the Nintendo web framework from the Wii U days. Who could ever forget? Yeah, who could forget such a dev tool as a Nintendo web framework? But no, the, the idea of it um, was to court indie devs and to beef up the weak wii u library nintendo made a suite of tools that basically ran your web first like html5 or java games in a shell of sorts on the wii u so you can like in a day 
just all you need to do is like map your control buttons over and like decide if you want to support the gamepad and touch and that sort of thing and then like you have your game running on wii u and it was a very easy way for them to grab a lot of games very quickly although with it of course came the wave of garbage games you know like all the crappy stuff does on the wii u eShop. um that a lot of it was facilitated by things like the web framework and they had a couple other tools as well but my point is like it opened up a lot of opportunities for people who weren't going to bring their games to wii u to quickly and reliably get them on wii u and if you just sub out like the low budget games of nintendo web framework for a shell of a cloud game download and the service that can provide here we are like this is just that idea so i I expect it to theoretically since it sounds like it's as promising as you guys are saying i would expect it to grow pretty quickly and attract a lot of companies i mean they're not naming names but the people behind it uh, a company called i think it's pronounced Ubitus, I don't know, U-B-I-T-U-S, Ubitus. Either way, they're the hmm. cloud infrastructure people that are making this a reality. They're doing cl- uh, Control, they're doing Hitman 3, and they've gone on record saying that they're already working with multiple, as they put it, industry-leading developers to bring other games to Switch via the cloud. And like Clockwork, um, it's looking like one of those games is going to be a cloud version of Resident Evil 3's remake, which the company, Ubitus, or however you say it, leaked themselves on their own website by mistake by listing it logo game Sounds icon and all sus. on the website yes very very sus but uh yeah so they've since deleted that so it's hard to say if it's like a future release or a placeholder or a can project or what but nonetheless like it's there resident evil 3 made come to switch yeah yeah you would think two, two would be the more i wonder if it's the recency like because if you look at the it games it is a smaller doing, game than two so i guess that makes sense Actually, that makes a lot more sense, yeah. Because it's know. definitely has less in it. I could tell you that. But uh, yeah, so but it's interesting that like it's already happening where there Nintendo um, has this company doing this thing, and already other companies are starting to pile on, and it could be a huge avenue for more support on Switch, which is kind of cool. So I'm very glad to hear that it um, runs okay. The, I mean the 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 whole thing does to me admit i'm on my soapbox a bit right now but it does to me admittedly feel like a bit of a cheat to boost the uh, switch game library and i'm kind of curious like to step off my soapbox for a sec would you guys actually pay like because you guys did the free control 10 minute window right like would you actually pay the asking price for these games and run them on your switch but never actually have the download available to you like are you okay with basically paying a rental fee that's the same price as the msrp on a different device for a full download, yes, I've okay. I've already given up on the idea that that we own everything that we buy. So <laughs> every Fair. literally everything Fair. that we buy is licensed. Even even when you buy a disc, I'm pretty sure the terms and conditions. Oh God, just tell you, <laughs> just tell you that hey, you don't actually own this. You just bought a license to it, kind of thing. Yeah, I think I think it's literally the same the same thing to me at this point. Interesting. What, what about you, Angel? Mm, sorry, can you repeat the question? Oh yeah, it's it basically like, are you okay with the idea of like if you want to play something on Switch, you're paying the same MSRP as what someone who can oh, physically oh, own it or okay. download it, but you're just getting a rental essentially because you know the server could shut down at any time. Um, like, this isn't something you. you... No, no, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. It's definitely become an easier pill to follow over the years. Um, maybe not so much like. I don't think I'm quite there yet where I'm like everything that I buy I have like it is not owned by me. I don't think I've 
quite accepted that yet, even if it is more than true. Yeah. But um, but you know, I, I'm kind of seeing it like I, I don't like to do that comparison, but you know, sometimes it just works. Like the whole like buying a movie ticket, it almost feels like I'm paying like so and so for this experience, even though I mean, because that's kind of what it is. Like I, especially for games, like most games, especially single player games, you don't typically revisit that often. So if it's fifty bucks or the same as some as the same as retail land. You know, I get my fun out of it. At the end of the day, that that's all that really matters. I think um, mm. I know people love to have the option later on to play it, even if they literally never do. Like, there are some games in my library that I'm pretty sure I'm never, ever going to boot up again. But I do like knowing that I still have it there. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that's just something that we all have to just kind of get over. But, or maybe not. I don't know. Having that option there is definitely great, especially because, you know, you could force someone else that you know that you really think would enjoy the game to play it and you still have it there and for all we know this may not be available later on so you know they could shut down the cloud server and that's it so so i'm definitely okay with it but i think it might be one of those things where ask me again in like 10 years and i'd be like uh yeah i kind of wish i still had that game because you know you never know like all of a sudden i could feel like playing it again and then that's when it's gonna suck but right now I'm like, eh, it's fine. Yeah, that that's kind of my thing. It's like, I mean, in my mind there are like two pitfalls. I mean, one we haven't even touched on is the limited accessibility. Like to play these things, obviously you're gonna need an internet connection and a decent ish one at that. Um, but the the, I mean, that part doesn't personally bother me too much because the majority of my Switch playing time, at least, especially especially since the pandemic, has been in a stationary place. You know, I'm not playing on a bus or a plane or like away from a Wi-Fi hotspot or something. Like I I have a connection. So for me, like. Being able to stream a game on my TV or curl up with it on the couch, like how one of you did TV and one of you did handheld for control, like it, that I guess still lets these games fulfill like the Switch promise of playing however you'd like. It's just sort of in a limited range. It's almost more like Wii U in a way, <laughs> where it's kind of like you're tethered to your house. But so that's maybe a lesser mm. issue. But um, I'm curious, like after the pandemic, if this, you know, cloud thing takes off, like how many people are going to be like, oh, half my library is not on the cloud and I can't play it on a plane. Like that might suck. But I do think, you know, your, especially your point, Andrew, about like what happens in 10 years, like the thing with ownership of games is, especially as someone that still likes to buy physical is, you know, if they, if they do pull it from the server one day, they, they promise on the eShop, they're going to give you six months notice, but like, that isn't really okay. So they'll give you six months notice. And then on month five, like, all right, I'll play it one more time. Sure. And then two years later, you still may want it and you're still paying the same price. And, um, to your point, I guess, Kevin, about the like licenses, that's true that, you know, you put a disc in your, in your PS4 and there's a license and you're actually downloading the majority of the content and it's not on the disc or you're installing it at least onto your hard drive from the disc and then it's there and there's DRM. But like most of those games, unless they're multiplayer oriented or require server or kind of like an event sort of thing, you know, like a Super Mario Bros. 35 or a Fortnite, I feel like most of those don't require you to be connected to the internet to play them. So if they say we bought you bought this license that. <laughs> at any time, it's still not going to be revoked. Like in ten years, if they shut down the server that checks the license, it'll still work. Uh, it's not checking against that. And you're absolutely right. But I think what it is is if you're getting into cloud gaming like this, you have to know everything going in. Which, which, yeah, that's true. Which credit to Nintendo, but, but they, they do that, let you know. Yes, no, and it's very good they say it up front, but that is sort of the, the underlying 
weird concern that I have, like I'm going to project a little here of what may happen is, you know, as, as Andrew, as you point out, we're talking regular video games, single player modes, no concerns about needing a server. Suddenly those concerns are now attached, which can be a bit worrisome because if these games are proven to be popular, if these cloud games take off, there's nothing stopping developers from now attaching these new concerns to games that could have come to Switch without the cloud. You know, like if a dev has to choose between spending a year figuring out how to make Doom Eternal work on a physical release or a download, or just slapping it into the shell of a cloud game and rolling it out in like a month, which are they going to choose? And before you answer, like, remember, every almost every third party refuses to buy the bigger Switch cartridge as is. They're all like, well, we'll give you the cheapest Switch cartridge and then you'll have to download the rest. So if they can even remove that cost and just do a cloud thing. Like, the, I guess what I'm saying is potentially if this works, the one real underbelly of it is, or like the downside of it is that games that could have run on Switch that you could have not had these issues and you could make the choice to go in on, you know, like, oh yeah, I can actually buy it and keep it or I accept the reality that I will have to stream it and I can lose it. All the games are going to go towards the streaming potentially. And then you don't get to say, well, I know the risk I'm going in. You are now being told this is your only option. Well, here, here's the way that I see it. Let's say, so, yeah. so this is, a possible gateway to let's say get cyberpunk onto the switch by streaming it mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. let's say the switch is the only thing that you own let's say you do have some pretty like a pretty good uh, internet connection i would rather spend the 60 dollars to experience cyberpunk and lose it five years in the future than to just not have played it yeah no i i i agree with I think I agree with that. Yeah, because you're describing my scenario. I'm a Switch only owner. I don't play. I don't have a gaming PC or any other console. Cyberpunk is something interesting. Yeah, I would probably bite the bullet and do it. I'm just thinking more of the long term preservation ripple effect, which is these are the same concerns when Stadia was first announced that you know Andrew and I had a whole conversation about back in 2018 or whenever they announced it. Like this isn't a uh, new thing. Not with but the whole yeah, but it's just like the idea that like it's not even so much, you know, cyberpunk. OK, now I can play cyberpunk. It's the only way to play cyberpunk. That's great. It's more like, so what does this mean for other games if the industry moves towards this entirely? I think this is literally just a case in the switch that they're trying it out because, come on, control, control was going to oh, run yeah, it went really bad. Like we've seen the witch report. It's not at all. What did we say that control was like? This is totally a feasible way of playing it. I no, would yeah. not play. I would not play The Witcher Three on on Switch. See, but like over a million people did want to play it on Switch to take it on a bus to take it on a plane, and now right, absolutely. If these but take off, but The Witcher was also a couple years old, right? So yeah. So future games like like Control. Control was a 2019 game. I think Witcher Three was 2016. So like yeah, and and uh, the Switch can can kind of handle The Witcher Three like. It's not going to handle anything from above uh, 2020, let alone next year when new gen games are coming out. You know, yeah. Unless that, unless that Switch Pro comes out, which. And honestly, I don't feel like the intention from Nintendo's side here is to, you know, like shift third-party resources. I think they really do see this as a way to augment the Switch library, and I think it is a way to augment the Switch library. I'm just thinking of a situation like Witcher 3 where they made it work. They made they made a 2016 game barely right. work. Right, right, right. Barely but work. Once the cloud thing takes off, what's to stop a developer who doesn't have a top-of-the-line thing from doing the cheaper cloud shell of a game? I'm not talking about like the cyberpunks and whatnot. I'm talking about the mid-tier, the stuff that's like maybe it's a multi-platform indie game. And instead of having to QA an entire Switch port, they just put it in a cloud shell and call it a day. 
Well, do you think that a a smaller a smaller dev is going to have the access to a cloud platform like this? I think if this takes off, they could. I mean, Amazon and Google are both doing this. Uh, PlayStation Now is doing Amazon this. and Google, <laughs> the two like small developers. Yes, uh, small small no, developers no, 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 in the indie space. Saying. No, Amazon and Google are setting up platforms where indies can easily put their games on their cloud services. WayForward's on both of them, I believe. Uh, oh. Image and Form is on them. Like, so if they are able to just yeah, but those but those platforms, especially Stadia, isn't doing so hot. Yeah, Stadia is not because it's a buy by game. I'm curious how Luma ends up because it's more of a of a HBO style subscription Luna. service where you have a you base one and then you it's stack. Not a, uh, or yeah, yeah, you're right. Galaxy. Um, I mispronounced and Hitman. The game's Hitman Three, everyone, not Hitman. Hitman. But um, no, I'm, I guess what I'm saying is it's opening a door that's going to lead to a lot of good opportunities for Switch owners like myself who don't have access to other things. But just in the back of my mind, I'm wondering what are the potential downfalls as well. Like, I don't think it's just like a carte blanche. Everything's going to be better. I think it, I think there's a given a take of what, how this could shift the Switch marketplace. Like, I honestly doubt that the developer of Heave Ho would rather opt for, (laughs) for having people wait in a queue line to access their game from the cloud. For a game like Heave Ho, like, or that genre, I feel like cloud game is definitely the way you don't want to go. I feel like yeah. I mean, it, it depends on the game. I'm yeah. I'm just saying. Like, can you give me an open. example of a game that you think? Because because you, you said like a or in general, Tor- Torchlight Three. It came out two weeks ago on other systems. It came out on Switch one week ago. What's to stop them? It's a not super fast pace. What's to stop them from just saying, you know what? We don't need to have Panic Button or whoever developed the third one sit there and recreate all our work. We'll just make a cloud shell and release it across them. Well, aren't they just aren't they giving the game to somebody else regardless? No, because it's like I mean, it's, it's like it's panic cl- button and then you, you, you bid a you bid whatever whatever they're you called you, whatever you, you, you ubiquitous the, whatever their name is the yeah. wonderful you, people you, you that that, well, that made control run on the switch. But the difference is when you hand it to you, buh, 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 they just uh, run it on PC in the same way it was originally developed, and all they do is map buttons over. Like it's like a it's like a, a turnkey solution versus having to build it from the ground up. So, um, I mean, again, it's it's too early to say. I think the benefits outweigh the cons. I'm just saying I think there are – you know, there is this sort of potential thing depending on how this goes. Because if every company is slowly moving towards the cloud, xCloud, PlayStation Now, um, this issue is going to be true anywhere really. Um, the question is just like what what does it turn into – by platform based on you know the audience and how they receive it and what type of games make the most to sense. Be, to be fair, I think Nintendo would probably be forward enough thinking to know that not everybody in the U.S. has access to awesome internet. Yeah. So they probably will be a little selective on what can probably do this. That's just personally that's, the that's way that I see hope. it. That, because Google, Google, when they announced it, they're like, "Oh no, ISPs will, ISPs will, will, will definitely be. They see the value in this, and they'll help us out." And then what happened? Absolutely nothing. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. So it, it maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but but overall, I think, like I said, I don't think Nintendo's malicious. You know, obviously, this is to augment the Switch library, and I think it does send that message, and it does literally do that really well, um, at least in the start here. So it. Yeah, and I think that was – like that was kind of to me what was sort of interesting about this showcase in general, this partner showcase, was like the through line was really, hey, whatever you want to do, Switch can do it now. 
like, you know, next-gen AAAs or current-gen AAAs that we can't run, guess what? We now can. You know, you want to play a mobile game? Here's Part-Time UFO as an example of, like, how they can be better on Switch than on your phone. Looking for retro releases? Like, surprise, here's both No More Hero games, which, as weird as it sounds to say, are actually now retro releases. You know, it's um, – they're over 10 years old now. Um, and actually, side note, since we speculate about a lot of stuff on the show, uh, remember we were talking a few episodes ago about uh, Killer7 maybe being a – uh, port for Switch by Engine Software, who did the port of the PC version, and we mm-hmm. thought that was the case because there's a LinkedIn from someone from Engine Software working on a Switch game. Well, they are the guys that did No More Heroes, and they have since said after announcing No More Heroes, they'd love to do Killer Seven on Switch. Just Suda Fifty One hasn't asked them yet, so that's what that rumor ended up being. It was No More Heroes One and Two. But anyway, my my point is, it feels like this, you know, and I guess to your point, Kevin, about like it's just a way to play more games. This presentation in particular really felt like nintendo was like no matter what you want we've got it i mean they even had like even the way they emphasized story of seasons in this thing felt to me like they were you know it's like the second game in the presentation that the tone they used for it is very much like hey did you buy a switch for animal crossing well guess what here's something for you i mean obviously story of seasons has been around forever under the harvest moon name before the whole weird natsume exceed kerfuffle but the way they angled it like the way they angled this new on pioneers was that also like a not my kojima game kind of situation uh so i think it was um marvelous who makes it in japan bought a stake in exceed and made it their u.s operation and natsume had a license for harvest moon and that was up for renewal and or for the Harvest Moon games, not the name. And then that's uh, Marvelous was like, uh, we're just gonna have our own publishing arm do it. Thanks, but no thanks. But Natsume owned the Harvest Moon name, so they had to come up with Story of Seasons. But the Story of Seasons franchise is Harvest Moon, and the new Harvest Moons are like Natsume's homegrown knockoff, essentially, of their own IP. If that makes sense, that was kind of the way it split, from my understanding. Um, but yeah, I thought like in the presentation, like the way they did Pioneers of Olive Town, like. It literally – the whole thing was just like, hey, Animal Crossing fans, like the emphasis on building and customizing your farm however you see fit, the call out of a crafting system, the focus on character interactions. Like it was very much like, you know, like you have this game with animals. What if they were humans instead and then here's this other game you can play? And um, yeah, like it just seemed like this presentation felt more balanced than a lot of them. And, and to be fair, like Story of Seasons does actually look pretty good. Like, I'm, I'm not trying to knock the game at all. I, re- I really liked Harvest Moon 64 and the Game Boy Color one. I think it was literally called Harvest Moon GBC, which is kind of a non-name. But, um, yeah, something about how this one, maybe the gameplay combined with the, the lens they were presenting it through, like, I, I actually was, like, kind of tempted. I don't know. It's not out till 2021, so who knows if I'll, like, end up pulling the trigger. But it certainly caught my eye in a way that, like, the last few of these haven't or really anything since as a kid like i mean did, were you guys ever really into harvest moon anyway or am i the only not really i think you're the only one that's ever been into those kind of life sims because i don't know i Except remember saying, like anything's better than my current one or something like that oh. the, than the current life <laughs> no no i have never said that i'm pretty content with life mine is pandemic you're like i'm happily married and have my cow and chicken in my harvest moon game or whatever that's all i've ever wanted in life was my cow and my chicken yes but yeah i don't know it's like like i think I think for me with Story Thank you for asking, Jason. No, I was never into those games. yeah. (laughs) Sorry, Kevin. (laughs) Assertiveness. Gotta be assertive. Yeah, uh, I guess I am alone. I think, yeah, because I was saying, I think for me, like, they got complicated, I guess. I don't know, like, the the N64 one was 
simple in the way the original Animal Crossing was simple. And then they layered stuff on, and I think it went kind of down a weird RPG route, and they're like, oh, you go mining for things, and then there's like, there's monsters, and that was Rune Factory, and I was just like, this is straying from the course of it. But I guess it's kind of circled back, or maybe I just haven't followed it that closely, but... I don't know. That one caught my eye. Like, were there any games in the presentation that caught your guys' eye at all? Like, the way that story season kind of caught mine? It was kind of a, <laughs> all over I mean, the, the, fact that, the fact that it showed up was, I guess, probably the thing that surprised me the most. But, I mean, I guess it shouldn't be because it does have a following. But I was just kind of like, whoa. <laughs> fair, right. fair. But no, no one no one jumped at Tropico 6 or... Uh... That one was also kind of... I, I mean, I knew that was announced already. Unless it wasn't. But I just felt like it was. Like when I saw that announcement, and I was like, "Oh yeah, that's cool." It, it, but it in, really... you know, they're not my cup. Of, they're just not my cup of tea, I guess. I, right. I think probably the one that like I batted the eye most that was um, Hitman Three. But um, you mean Hitman? Hitman. 3. Hitman. Yeah, Hitman. <laughs> uh, John Hitman Three. Yeah, him. Um, yep. Yeah, that one was definitely the one that I was like, "Wait, what? Like, what about one and two? And <laughs> See that could be a physical port. Yeah. What about you, Kevin? Anything? Uh, any games jump out? No, not really. It is cool. Uh, like we've already talked about it. Control. Right. Right. Yeah. I do think. Um, I do think that it's nice to see. And this is something that we thought said in the early days of of the Switch would be the case. But it's nice to see that they're trying to like do the whole like expand the footprint strategy. Like they tried to cherry pick some genres early on, and now to see that there's like enough market of those genres. Like you know, in the presentation I mentioned Tropico Six, right? Well, Civ Six was on Switch, and uh, and you know other and Roller Coaster Tycoon, and like seeing like one game become two oh, games yeah. become like now a growing thing. Um, just the way they kind of expand out, or like even fitness games, like Ring Fit sold like three million, which we'll talk about with financials later. But now you know Fitness Boxing One and Two, and like there's like a fitness uh, game from Namco Bandai coming out, and just like this. Like all these niches are starting to form and actually grow, and it's it's not just the Switch isn't just the core gamer system anymore. It's they did what they wanted to do. They got the the casual market. They've got the you know this niche, that niche, this genre, that genre. Um, but one that I didn't really expect to pop up in the presentation was Part Time UFO, which for those who don't know is actually a mobile game from HAL. I kind of already said it, so I would hope you know because I literally said it three minutes ago. But it's a mobile heard game of it, from HAL. But, yeah. What was that? No, you like. definitely you heard about it because I talked about it on the no, show. No, that's I said. I've, I've, I had only heard of it before, but oh, I don't yeah, even remember yeah. what it had looked like until I saw that trailer, and I was like, "Oh, right." Because yeah, it came it's out very back how. in twenty. It, yeah, it's totally how it came out in like twenty eighteen. It was through a subsidiary called How Egg. It was on mobile, and yes, it is how to a T. To your point, I mean, they really have this ability how to and how. And how, but they really have that. We are full of really bad puns today, but they really have a, like this knack really for like taking a super simple idea and building it into like kind of a charming game. I mean, Kirby's literally a circle. Box Boy's literally a square. Who's just a box like that, you know, and then they, they make them into something. And with part time UFO, like it's basically, you could really trace the idea back to a crane claw machine, crane game, whatever you want to call it. And that's literally the whole game is like you move the claw, you push a button you drop it down you try and pick something up and then the physics of how that all goes down is basically the puzzle itself and that's the game so, so i the, have the, the part-time work in like are you is, your, is the angle to become a full-time ufo or well, you have so, to like so manage your minimum wage or something so kind of yeah so um i guess i'm sort of slipping into impressions here but uh yeah because I, I bought the switch version i have it on mobile i bought the switch one for co-op but yeah the premise is essentially um, you're this little robot guy named Jobski, which I didn't, I didn't think he had a name in the mobile one, but now he's named Jobski. And he ends up on Earth and doesn't know what to 
do and he needs money to like get out of there and so he's looking for work like it's mm. part time because he's also trying to figure out what he's doing on earth so he's looking for work and he literally goes to a job listing in a newspaper and just finds tasks to do and they can be you know like loading fruit into a car or putting toys in a toy box or uh, building an ancient greek structure or uh you know stuff like that and he does it using his claws. So he picks things up and puts them down and picks things up and puts them down. And where things get tricky is, like I was trying to say, like it's about the physics, really the inertia of everything. So if you're flying full speed trying to build like a the Greek structure or a totem pole, you know, placing things on top of each other, it's going to swing wildly. Things aren't going to land straight. You're, you know, it could ruin your whole progress. At one point, you have to build like a cheerleader tower. And if you can't get them to be like a pyramid or to sit on one another correctly, the whole tower tips over and you're not going to win. It's, it's kind of like... It's about being like meticulous in a way that like Jenga is like the tension of Jenga, except instead of uh, removing things, you're adding things uh, and you have to do it in a bit of a time limit as well. So that's sort of um, every the time limit extends every time you put a piece down. So it gives you some chance. But there is like a bit of urgency. Well, Jenga, you can sit and stare at it forever. And, you know, so this is like you're kind of juggling the physics with the time with the. Yeah. And um, what's new to the Switch version is there actually is a straight up Jenga mode called tower of infinity where you just see how high you can build and that's one of a few new um gameplay things the other one is something called feats of glory which is this whole second type of challenge where you try and do things like you know uh basically achievements really like get all the medals in um a certain thing or move across a total number of objects from level to level like have you moved 160 objects you get an award and uh those awards are these special illustrations which is something new in this version of the game is they've They've really like upped the charm. I mean, the game was already kind of charming, um, but they have like a new share feature. And if you share something, it's using the share button on Switch, but there's also a built-in software version. You can press start or, or plus or minus that goes straight to a share sheet. Um, which the only other game I've ever seen do that on Switch is weirdly Cooking Mama Cookstar. So kind of kind of odd that they pioneered it, and then Hal and Nintendo borrowed the idea. But um, when you do those and send it off, you get another like little cutesy, very Hal-esque charming animation illustration thing too. So they've kind of upped the charm factor in this one compared to the mobile one. But but back to the core game, um, I mentioned you know there are medals to collect. And how the game's structured is very much like a mobile game. So each stage you do, there are challenges you, you can beat and you earn medals, and those medals then accumulate to unlock more stages. Uh, but in sort of like how how set up Box Boy... Um, there's also a set of secondary medals you can unlock, two more per stage. And that's kind of where the game's real challenge lies because, like, you can pick up a fruit or two and drop them in the back of a pickup and be like, I beat the game. But the real challenge is you're not told what these secondary medals are require. You see a picture and you kind of have to figure it out. They give you a hint of what to do. Like in a fishing one, you may see, you know, um, you may need to catch a certain number of fish or see that there's, like, what looks kind of like a sea urchin. You're like, well, where's the sea urchin? You realize, oh... You really have to like go drop your crane all the way down in a certain spot, and then there's a sea urchin. And once you see it, you're like ah, that's what that icon is, and you kind of piece it together. Um, or you have to like not just put the truck, the fruit in a truck, you have to put them in a basket in the back of a truck. So they have all these little like hints of things. Uh, one of the more elaborate, the ones I was saying were really easy, but one of the more elaborate is when you're building that entire like Greek apoco- uh, Acropolis looking structure. Um, mm. There's actually a guy you can place inside it. And they don't, you don't actually need to, but if you do, you get a medal. Or like there's one with a cheer squad where you have to get them over 3.05, I guess, I don't know, not feet, not inches. You have to get them past a certain height. And you realize, spoiler alert, the only way to really do it is there's a camera guy off to the side who's filming the 
cheering. I don't know why. It actually sounds creepy when I put it that way. But you he, – he looks like a background object, but you can actually grab him. Like if you kind of claw him enough, he'll pop out to the foreground and you can grab him and use him to build your tower. So like it's like things like that where you have to kind of like figure it all out as you go. There's another where you have to like put not just the toys in a toy box but know to put the rings on the side of the toy box. And again, some of them are easier, some of them are harder, but it's kind of that. Figuring out what you need to do to solve those little single image clues is kind of the the real like meat and potatoes of it versus just dropping things on top of things. And then on top of that, I don't recall if this is new to the Switch version or not, but if you then clear a stage um, – oh, no, it is new to the Switch version because I think these are parts of the Feats of Glory. If you clear a stage, you then get harder things to do, and that's more like you know the move this many objects or whatnot. So that's kind of the core concept, uh, whether on mobile or Switch, but new for the Switch version, which does lead to double the cost of the game versus mobile, is beyond just the two new modes of Tower Infinity and Feats of Glory, there's also – a, tactile controls, so you can actually use the joystick and the face buttons, which is really nice because while I did like on mobile that when you held the uh, game, you, they mapped a fake Game Boy interface on top, so you had like the D-pad on the left button on the right, it was still, you know, a fake control stick and a fake button on a touchscreen. It wasn't, there was no like actual feeling of doing things. It's much easier to control with a stick and a, button, and a real button, so that's nice, and that's number one. But number two is the entire game works in co-op now. Which is a lot of fun because with something like this, with all the physics and everything, it's a lot of talking it through and like kind of coordinating and figure out, you know, you have a job ski. The other player has, I don't know the other one's name, red job ski, I guess. And um, you really got kind of like in a snipper clip sort of way, really sort of talk through your strategy. And it's very, it, it, it's really fun. It's not like some co-op games where it's just like, oh, we're, we're doing things side by side or we're both like moving towards the same goal, but we're kind of independent. Like because you're building the same thing, you really have to work together and coordinate. And, and it, it honestly, I would say like if you have someone that you play co-op games with on Switch, like this is probably in the same echelon as like snipper clips or the stretchers or like something like that where it really – feels like a whole different experience or a better experience if you have that co-op um so even if you played it on mobile and even though the puzzles are kind of same the extra challenges and having the ability to do it with someone else and have like kind of the doubling of all the inertia and the physics makes it kind of worth double dipping um Mm. the only thing that's kind of like it's not a perfect game like there's some kind of weird stuff like one is um every time you beat a new challenge you're taken back to the main menu instead of just to the screen to pick the next challenge which seems like why would they do that? Uh, but for the most part, like it's it's pretty cool. Like I was happy to see the game get some more attention. I'm really happy to see that they actually like enhanced it. They did add some new environments as well. So I think the original was 27 stages or something. This one's higher. I, I haven't gotten all the way through it, so I couldn't actually tell you how high. But they they mix them in as you go. So like the toy box one, that's like the fourth or fifth, and that's new. Uh, it wasn't on the mobile version. That's already there. So even for people people who have played it before, it's not like you have to go through all the same experience. And then get the new stuff. It's kind of sprinkled throughout along with the new modes, of course. Um, but the real thing that I'm excited about, about this and why like, I was really glad that to see it pop up was this is the exact type of like quirky little game I feel Nintendo let fall to the wayside when they consolidated handheld and console lines into the single Switch. Like, you know, the Pushmos, the Dylan's Rolling Westerns, the Harmonites, um, going back for their DS, like the art style games. Like all those always had a home on handhelds, DS, 3DS. But on console, Nintendo didn't really do them as much. They eventually would bring sequels over, like Pushmo got a sequel on Wii U, but it started on 3DS. And seeing that Nintendo's not only 
sort of supporting games like uh, Part-Time UFO, but actually took over the role of publishing it. Hal didn't publish this. They published the mobile one, but Nintendo themselves were the ones that basically made this happen on Switch. Gives me a little hope that maybe we're going to start seeing quirky, weird Nintendo again in like a in a meatier way than uh, Jump Rope Challenge. Like an actual, like real kind of small time, but deeper It has projects. been a while before we, yeah. since we've gotten a big release of Weird Nintendo. So there is there is part of me that's almost like if you like those types of quirky games buy part-time ufo just to kind of vote with your dollar that you want more of those types of quirky games but if you do that you also are going to get a really fun really charming little physics puzzler that's a really cool co-op mode that feels right at home on switch so that's kind of my two cents on part-time ufo and why i was happy to see it in the presentation um the other game from the mini that i've been playing or well, demo of a game is Hyrule Warriors Age of Calamity, which, to be fair, it's like that an hour-long game. demo. Yeah, it's it's an hour's worth of content. Like, it's the whole first chapter of the full game, and that save data does transfer over should you want to buy it on November 20th. So, um, or later. It just starts coming out on November 20th. But yeah, so there is um, there is probably some interest in this game, and it's probably smart Nintendo to do the demo. But I think my main takeaway, I'm guessing you guys didn't try the demo. No, I knew from the get-go that it wasn't a game for me, even if the game is clamored as being said to be more like Breath of the Wild than a Warriors game. Yeah, I mean, I already know I'm not going to... So, I mean, even if it isn't, like, there's plenty of other games I I need to try out and play. I mean, Star Wars. What what about you, Kevin? Have you... No, I haven't tried it. Tried it? I do plan on trying it. Yes, so it's, I mean, I guess to Angel's point and as a heads up to you, Kevin, it is first and foremost, like my takeaway is no matter what you think of the concept of it, ultimately it is a Warriors game. It is dressed up as something else. Um, so what that means, you know, is for the most part, you, because it's a Warriors game, are going to uh, be going through groups of enemies from one group to the next using all sorts of different button combos to un- unleash attacks. You tend to go to like almost pods of different enemies. You know, there's a captain enemy who requires more damage to defeat and that's kind of rinse and repeat of that structure. But that dressing up as something else thing is interesting because what the devs did is they actually tried to mix in how like the Zelda elements in how they present it. And they tried to do it in a more organic way. Like the original Hyrule Warriors was just a mashup of Zelda fan favorites, right? So it was all sort of slapped together with the, this weird time travel story and everything's just like, yeah, we'll make this work. This makes sense. Here, because they're sticking in Breath of the Wild, it has a cohesion. Even in the demo, even that one hour, it had a cohesion that I feel like Hyrule Warriors kind of lacked. I mean, in a way, it's all still just table dressings, um, but it felt a little better. Like in, in other Warriors games, you have your close-range fighters, which is Link in this case. You have some that use magic, which is Impa in this case, uh, in the demo. And you have others that are kind of more distant space fighters, like in this case Zelda. But here, they're all sort of threaded together with elements from Breath of the Wild, namely the Sheikah Slate. And while some attacks don't quite fit the theme, like Impa does stuff with cards, which I don't really understand, um, other ap- others like absolutely do. Like Link and Zelda both can freeze enemies and launch them in a different direction using stasis. They can throw those bombs that you can summon in Breath of the Wild. They can summon those ice blocks to jump off of, which they can then string together with combos because everyone now has a paraglider like Link has, which um, you know actually can be pretty fun because you can do like airborne combos. Like in Link's case, 
you can use the ice block. All your Sheikah Slate stuff is mapped to R plus a face button. Hop off it with the paraglider by just pressing B, and then shoot your arrow, complete with the slow-mo aiming from Breath of the Wild with tap a ZR. And it feels really fluid, and it feels really good, and each character can do those sorts of combos using the Sheikah Slate in different ways. And then on top of that, they've I don't remember this being in Hyrule Warriors original, but you can collect items from enemies and use those as a whole secondary set of moves with the L button plus face buttons so like in the demo you're finding different whiz robes ice and lightning and you can um take their ice and lightning lightning rods and use those as attacks in combination with the sheikah slate stuff so you can put someone in stasis throw a bomb at them freeze them with ice you know do all sorts of different things him with a lightning bolt and it, it makes it if you like the system of the warrior games it makes it very um fluid feeling and it really feels like you're doing some cool combos and my feeling from the demo is that within the framework of Warriors is where Age of Calamity is going to shine. So if you don't like Warriors gameplay, I don't think this is going to move the needle for you. But if you're okay with Warriors gameplay, what they do inside that draws heavily from Breath of the Wild in some kind of interesting ways, like weapon crafting and cooking are back. Uh, you'll need to find the necessary items for both as you explore each level. So there's a little bit of that Breath of the Wild exploration feel, um, like the actual action of performing each of them is just a menu option on the overworld menu now, which kind of feels, I know technically there are also menus that drove it in Breath of the Wild, but the fact that it's like removed from the world and you're doing it on like just a map menu is a little odd, but at least it's there. And then like Korok seeds are back. Um, you just sort of spot them as you run around through the more linear levels. But again, like at least they're there and they tie into the idea of, you know, going through every nook and cranny of Hyrule and Breath of the Wild here in the demo, it was in your face. Like, literally, he's on your main path. But I imagine in the Fuller game, they're going to be in nooks and crannies as well. So it, you, like, can see how they're trying to sort of bre- Breath of the wild the Warriors formula. And even in the demo, like, it did lead to some variety to scenarios I didn't really expect. Like, the first stage is 100% what you think when you play a Warriors game, wave after wave of Emmy. But then the second one, it's you versus a Guardian, and you're actually told to do the opposite of fighting. You're told to run away from him. You need to explore, like, back areas of the map, trigger some defense towers to weaken the Guardian, and only then do you fight it. And at that point, you're only fighting it. They don't do the horde of enemies. They don't do the, like, captain and his team. It's just this huge Guardian, and you can bring all your characters in together, and it's kind of cool because... um at least what I ended up doing was I was rotating between the, between the three playable characters. So I was comboing not just what they could do as one character, but actually mixing and matching them together, which was kind of kind of fun and a little different than how I remember High Rewards being able to do because that one was more about you send your AI guy to another army somewhere else or some other other army somewhere else, and you're kind of dividing and conquering. But this, they're at least experimenting with the idea of well, what people are like together and that you know. So that's kind of different. Um, but I think what. I think really like what people who maybe aren't familiar with the genre are going to be enticed by is um, – or if they like the genre is uh, Breath of the Wild story tie-ins, right? Like I don't remember who it was, but I saw someone mention online that this is kind of the Rogue One of Breath of the Wild. Like you know, it's uh, it, it does feel like it based on the demo, even Justin down. Like they're taking all those familiar elements you know and love, you know, Breath of the Wild, Star Wars, what have you, and they're telling you a story about characters you already know the fate of. But you get to learn how that fate comes to pass. And as a result, it lets them tell a bit more linear of a story in a more direct fashion than Breath of the Wild because you're literally just following the story beats versus kind of forging your own. But it doesn't feel weird because you kind of know where it's going. So even though it's a different style of storytelling, it doesn't like feel disjointed from Breath of the Wild that much. Um, like Obviously, you can't do a more open-world approach if you know exactly where everyone ends up. You kind of walk the player through the trials and tribulations of how they get there. And in, you know... In the demo, that gives them the opportunity right off the bat to 
flesh out the lore with new characters or do things like introduce the baby guardian who is basically the zelda world's baby yoda he like has a cute little slide whistle thing he does when he talks um or you know it, it also lets them show the scale of the war so a lot of cutscenes have really cool like machinery and war machines and all this stuff going on and i imagine it's gonna get more in depth the demo cuts right when the four champions uh levels open up to recruit them to your cause and i imagine that's where you get to learn for, further about each of them so from a lore perspective age of calamity seems like it'll be pretty great and it's clear the devs put a lot of effort into making sure it feels like part of the breath of the wild world like the game straight up looks it uh there's all sorts of little attention to detail i mean someone apparently spent the time to let you control the baby guardian on the load screen for no real reason like they really are like trying to make it like feel fully fleshed out which unfortunately leaves me confused about one other aspect of the game which is the frame rate which chugs like i don't really understand what happened here i know these games aren't known for their frame rate but like there's draw distance issues there's pop-up of like foliage and plants the the water fountains like in some of in the first level like as you walk closer you see it's barely moving and then when you get closer just suddenly speeds up like to try and save i guess memory or something uh part like part of me feels like they spend all this time building this world tying it into breath of the wild doing all these great things and then the frame rate was so unstable that i was just like can they just like not rush this out for the holidays like i know why they need it out for the holidays mm. and i know like Kevin maybe it should saying, be a cloud game <laughs> maybe <laughs> but i know like kevin you were even saying earlier like oh well maybe the switch pro when talking about like things that can run these games better in the future yep. and like i know the switch pro isn't 100 percent confirmed but like every six weeks or so it feels like there's some new tidbit like the latest is how um it's apparently got a micro led screen according to an outlet called economic daily news which you know better picture quality better battery life that's great but if that thing's so close to reality if these rumors keep popping up um like the performance issues that the game has currently makes me think they should have followed in the footsteps of uh, fire emblem warriors which it didn't work on 3ds they didn't realize they realized it wouldn't fully run on 3ds so they needed the extra juice of the new 3ds and they made it new 3ds exclusive and like honestly if they were to have delayed this or polished up the core frame rate in the same way I feel like because everything else feels so good and right, like it would just make an overall better experience because the frame rate at times was so wild that it actually slightly gave me a headache, which I never have had happen. So that was a little Whoa. weird. Um, like not a bad headache. I just felt like a, like a little like, okay, this is a bit much. Um, and I looked online. And I'm not the only one that's noticing the f- frame rate issues. And it's possible they can clean it up maybe. But I imagine this is based on the final build of the game or very close to the final build. So I keep thinking like that Nintendo's having such a killer year in terms of sales. Like we joke, you know, we talked, talk, we talked all year about how it's a quiet year for Nintendo. But as I was tweeting the other day, like they're selling gangbuster. Like it's not quiet in terms of sales. They're doing great. And their financials show that, which we'll get to in a sec. So it kind of feels like they could get away with delaying this. I know they won't. Obviously they're not going to skip a holiday season, especially when Zelda – they now have a Zelda a year approach. They have an annual Zelda game. It was Breath of the Wild. Then there was a gap. Then they saw the attack trade of Breath of the Wild and then Link's Awakening and now Hyrule Warriors back to back year two year uh you know, two years in a row. And it makes sense. Like Breath of the Wild has an attach rate of nearly thirty percent. Like almost one in every three of the switches now sixty eight million owners. That's more than all the owners of the NES ever. You know, they also own Breath of the Wild. That's a huge audience that Nintendo's got a lot of sell. Warriors too. So I get why 
they want to get it out. But there's definitely a part of me that's like, you know, I look at their latest financials and I look at how their evergreens keep selling and how they're positioning their releases this year. And I just think like, they don't really need Hyrule Warriors in two weeks from now. Like they're, they're, they're doing fine. Fine. Take your time. Yeah. Like, I mean, to, to like really to sort of transition into the financials here for a minute to prove my point. Like, so this report came out, right. And it covers the quarter from July 1st to end of September and obviously more sales and more sales. So like putting Hyrule Warriors out, that's going to be three, four million copies of something that they wouldn't have sold otherwise. But like, they're killing it right now as is. I mean, the Switch, like I said, 68 million sold. Uh, that means that over the summer, the Switch sold 6.86 million units just in the summer, which is a number I think only the DS has ever achieved during a non-holiday season. And that was in its prime in 2007 and 2008 in the springs of those years. It's 40% more than the Switch sold last summer. And with that came a wave of huge software numbers. Like Animal Crossing sold another three plus million, which means it's now doubled the entire lifetime sales of New Leaf in about nine months. It sold 26 million copies, and that's before having any holiday season under its belt. It's now the number two selling Switch game of all time. In Japan, it has sold enough, over 8 million copies, to be the country's best-selling game of all time. Like, Nintendo's doing fine. They don't need Hyrule Warriors. And then you've got, you know, the smattering of new games that Nintendo put out over summer, like uh, Mario 3D All-Stars. That thing took off like a rocket. It sold 3.5 million in four weeks. They've shipped over 5.2 million copies already. And they got Paper Mario, Oregon King Mansion moved 2.82 million in the summer quarter, which. That good? That's not that just. better than the other that, games well, in the series? Well, it's not just the fastest selling Paper Mario ever. It's already the second best entry, best selling entry ever behind Super Paper Mario, which unfortunately, yes. it's, it's good for sales. It's bad for anyone who wants a traditional Mario RPG back because that's not going to happen. The two best sellers are not that. And like even Clubhouse Games, which is a game that, you know, flew under a lot of people's radar, that thing sold just shy of 2 million copies, 1.8 million. Basically, anything Nintendo releases on Switch is continuing to, uh, you know, to see what we've previously nicknamed the Switch bump here on the show. And like, they could ride that out. Like even Pikmin 3, that's a port of a more niche release for Nintendo. In Japan, at least, it's, uh, obviously the financials don't have it because it came out last week. But in Japan, uh, the sales are already the highest debut of a Pikmin game. That includes both the Wii ports and the original releases. It's about, uh, it looks like 171,000 in two days, just physical, versus Pikmin 2 on GameCube having 162,000 in its first week. So, like, anything Nintendo does, it's selling. So, like, they don't necessarily need to have high rewards. Like, let it fix. I mean, even stuff like um, Mario, you know, I said it's, it's already shipped 5.2 million copies. They're marketing that like crazy for the holidays. They're doing this promotion with Amazon where the whole Mario 35th anniversary, besides having a portal on Amazon's website where you can browse and shop and it's you know easily accessible and Amazon's promoting it, they are branding Amazon boxes. The boxes going out from Amazon, a random selection of them, are being painted are being printed red and have Mario art and Nintendo logos and the anniversary thing and like they're and that's just whether you're ordering for, Nintendo. It's for anything. Not, right? Yeah, it's for anything. Which is Are like you ordering like something every other day just to make sure you get a box? No, I should though. <laughs> but it's just uh, to me, it's just it's such an interesting strategy because well, on the one hand, the number of like porch pirates taking those boxes is probably gonna go through the roof because they probably think it's a three hundred dollar switch in there or something of the sort. But um, it's interesting because it's such like a pandemic first like marketing approach. You know, Amazon sales are through the roof. Everyone's getting stuff delivered to their home. So what does Nintendo do? They buy the basically the real estate on all the boxes. Like it's it's kind of smart. Um, and it, it it's kind of – it also kind of makes me wonder like 
if other things they've done have been retrofits of you know for the pandemic like all the stuff on my nintendo we were talking about last episode all the new trinkets and items and they just announced like pikmin decals for the mugs like part of me thinks oh those were probably the trade show goodies the e3 swag the comic-con swag and they already produced them and now they're just trying to figure out how to use them and you know so now they've pivoted it to be a my nintendo selling point with shipping charges <laughs> but mm-hmm. you know it's, it's, it's just kind of interesting that like their nintendo is not only doing so well but continuing to market in such aggressive ways that like again if Hyrule warriors wasn't there i don't know if it would be the end of the world because i haven't even touched if on amazon Evergrounds. offered hmm. if after a purchase um amazon offered the option like one dollar to guarantee you get a mario box would you actually pay it i'd pay up to five Oh, Listen, wow. I paid five dollars for those Mario pins, which, by the way, or five dollars shipping, I should say, for those f- free "quote unquote" Mario pins, which, by the way, showed up last week and they actually look really nice. Yeah, the packaging is really nice. The package is really—it definitely feels like something you would have gotten at E3. Like, you know, play five booths, play five games in the booth, take your stamp card to this guy, get the pin set. Like, it really felt like. Oh, they're like, get the heck out of here! <laughs> yeah, get the heck out of here! Or yeah, well, that's what they said to us that one year at Comic Con when oh, yeah. we watched like, the swag, and they're like, "You're adults. What are you doing?" And we're like excuse us (laughs) but yeah um but yeah i would pay a few bucks for it why not although honestly i i don't know why i would do it that box it's a cardboard box that has red ink on it and a mario face like i don't know why i would do it i probably won't actually try and seek out the box but it's really smart and it's a good way to market something that they already released and well is already selling multi-millions and is one of the fastest supposedly one of the fastest mario debuts ever although i don't i haven't seen the actual numbers of that i've just heard analysts speculate that uh or read that they speculate that but like that's a whole you know that's one bag of tricks nintendo has for the holiday the other is they've still got the evergreens like mario kart over the summer somehow sold another 2.28 million which means that if you now combine deluxe on switch and uh the original on wii u it is the best-selling entry in the mario kart series it has surpassed mario kart wii's 37 million it's at like it surpassed it by like forty six thousand or something but it's still ahead and i bet you by the end of the holidays animal crossing will be at over 30 million too um in all like since the fiscal year started in april 16 first party nintendo games and 20 switch games overall have gone on to be uh million sellers just since april as in like they sold another million since april and like it's crazy like nintendo could just ride this out i mean mario kart's up they gave percentages mario kart's up 145 percent compared to a year ago Zelda's up 114. Super Mario price up 124%. Mario U Deluxe basically doubled its sales, 102%. Mario Odyssey's 114%. Splatoon's 162%. Like everything's up. And there's other games like Fire Emblem Three Houses, which just surpassed uh, its own, or broke its own record. It's now the best selling entry in its franchise. Pokemon Sword and Shield hit 19 million, which means it's literally the. No one's done that since Gold and Silver. So it's now the third best Pokemon, best selling Pokemon game ever. And over the summer, it sold nearly a million copies, 800,000 off the DLC alone, basically. So, like, Nintendo has so many games <laughs> that they could just ride out the holiday with if they need to. And obviously not every game gets a big bump. Like, you know, I said Sword and Shield is killing it. But on the other side of that coin, uh, Pokemon Let's Go, granted it's older now. That's but still it, making money? They are. They sold 300,000 units, which on the one hand, okay. Crazy. But on the other hand, that means it's actually slowing down compared to other remakes like uh um omega ruby and alpha sapphire for example are so now adding megas didn't it. really help that much then or it still sold like 11 million copies so or 12 maybe by now so it's fine 
it's just not it doesn't have the same legs as auras did at the time which maybe because soren shield sort of ate its lunch but you know so like not my point is not every switch release is like totally killing it but there's a there's a set that's doing really well like another example of one that isn't doing as hot is uh xenoblade definitive edition it sold something like i think it was 1.3 million in a, the first month it was out on the last financials it's only gone up to 1.4 million in this quarter so a difference of like eighty thousand, and that's a slower rate than xenoblade 2 sold for example so like not every game is killing it but when you've got 16 million sellers nintendo can and clearly will you know easily ride those coattails i mean they're now expecting to make a 450 billion yen operating profit by the end of march that's 50 percent higher than the number they thought at the start of this fiscal year and they've already made uh not to switch currencies but they already made 2.79 billion in this first half of the year alone in dollars um so like they're you know they're expecting their profit to go up to, uh, to go up 50 percent. they're now projecting that switch is going to go from 19 million switches to 24 million switches and you know based on everything i just rattled through and the fact that like they actually have switch inventory they say their production's at full capacity for the first time since covid started even though ps5 is coming out even though xbox has series x and s there's a very good chance like nintendo's gonna be on top because they just have the momentum and they have the price advantage and they that doesn't even factor you know other avenues that nintendo's making money like um their mobile world their mobile everything is up 34 percent year over year that means pokemon go um and dr mario world and mario kart tour and animal crossing and all those are still generating them cash pokemon go in particular actually made them a billion bucks in or let me rephrase that pokemon go generated a billion bucks in uh 2020 alone that's according to sensor tower it's the first time since it launched that it made over a billion dollars in a year and it's 11 percent higher than it did last year and nintendo gets a cut of that and that's not even something they have to do anything for or with so again like Nintendo is very well positioned to do extremely well this holiday and is already making hand over fist and money. They can fix that Hyrule Warriors frame rate. It'd be okay. <laughs> I think they should. That's that's all I got. <laughs> I mean, I, that's how. It could get that's it. Later that's on. the show. What was that? Get I know they on. could. No, I no, know, but just no, like I was really surprised at how low, how wild the frame rate moved given Nintendo's usual standards. But yeah. So that that I mean, unless you guys have any other talks, that's literally it for the show. <laughs> like that's my that's my big like exclamation point at the end of the two hours was fix that frame rate or delay the game. <laughs> but but yeah, um, anyone have anything? We should, we call it, should we call it? Uh, no, I guess not. Do you have more um, pod racing to discuss, Angel? <laughs> no, that's not I said. Just to just get Star Wars pod racing. Okay. Episode so one. Go buy. I did buy it per your recommendation, and then after I bought it, you told me it's really hard, and now you're now telling me it's actually not that hard. So I guess I just need to play it and see. Oh my god! <laughs> but uh, yeah, okay. Well, Kevin, do you have anything you want to share before we go through housekeeping here? Uh, thank you for asking. Uh, no, I'm good. You're so welcome. <laughs> you're, really, I, I owe you. Um, but yeah, okay. Well, our next episode in that case is on November twenty second. Um, that is. Usually Nintendo's favorite weekend. It's when they launch their big holiday tile, Hyrule Warriors, or their console or whatever. This year, again, it's Hyrule Warriors. But what we'll have, hopefully, is the Game & Watch Super Mario Brothers edition to share impressions of. comes out this Friday. Um, I don't even you know, know it's, how to pre-order it. Can, that's the thing. That's why I was saying, hopefully. There are no pre-orders. Nintendo, like I guess, decided not to. So it's just going to be a bloodbath come uh, Thursday at 9 p.m. Pacific time, I would guess. Or midnight Pacific time, or who knows. Um, well, at least we know really we're getting a play date. It's it. What was that? 
At least we know we're getting a play date based on in that last email they yeah. sent. Yeah. yeah, I don't know why like Nintendo can't follow that pattern. Play date is saying, if you order it, you'll get it. So just like do that. But none of the consoles are doing that. Like PlayStation 5 and Xbox still sell out even though they could just make a queue. Like just do it like how iPhones do it. You order it and then they give you a ship date. But either way, Easy. either way, uh, the Game & Watch is clearly going to be the pinnacle of this upcoming week in the gaming world. I mean, there's two other consoles launching, but let's be real. So I'll have impressions of it if I can get it uh, next week. And if either of you guys are picking up too, we can discuss what we think of it. Otherwise, who knows what the episode will be about. But to make sure you don't miss it, um, you can subscribe to us on all the podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, uh, Pandora, Spotify, iHeartRadio. We're on YouTube, RandomNintendo.com is the channel name. Um, we are on Twitter at Ram Nintendo. You can follow us individually as well. I'm JSR7, Angels Wero, W E R R O, and Kevin is KVN Gomi. And he will be able to get a word in edgewise because it's his Twitter. I, I can't talk over that. How's that work? So, um, yeah, I guess that pretty much does it. Oh, and there's a Quarantine Chronicles. We took a week off last week, but we're back next week with all sorts of stuff. Um, so season two, baby. Sunday. Season two. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, it's a season two. Yeah. So uh, with that, Kevin, final word? Fix that frame rate, Nintendo.